Yes, you'll read the big black headlines about Norma Desmond and this Hollywood scandal. You'll never read the true story about the rest of us who were part of it. Me, for instance, Joe Gillis, a promising young writer from Dayton, Ohio. And Betty, that nice kid I met at a Hollywood party, who knew nothing about me, but knew what she wanted. Don't you love Artie? Of course I love him. I always will. I'm just not in love with him anymore. What happened? Excuse me? Well, to live happily ever after, like they do in the movies. But this was different, because this is a Hollywood story about the people who make the movies. The little ones that you never hear of, like Betty and me. The great ones, like Cecil B. DeMille. All those who knew Norma Desmond, a strange woman who left her mark on all of us, who crossed her path. Has it ever occurred to you that I may have a life of my own? That there, there may be some girl that I'm crazy about? Some car for a dress extra? What I'm trying to say is that I'm all wrong for you. You want a Valentino, somebody with polo ponies, a big shot. What you're trying to say is you don't want me to love you. Say it. Say it. Gloria Swanson, one of the great personalities of this generation in a role that comes to an actress once in a lifetime. Rising to the heights, William Holden creates a startling portrayal. And a new star is born in Sunset Boulevard, Miss Nancy Olson. Joe? Where are you? What's this all about? Why don't you come out and see for yourself? The address is 10,086 Sunset Boulevard. Yes, come out to see for yourself the film that reaches a new milestone of dramatic daring. The film that every critic says is a giant among motion pictures.
Okay, you're watching Movie Night Extravaganza. I'm here, as always, with my fun-loving co-host, Dandrew World. With Howdy. Matthew, the film guy of Majority Report fame, and uh, editor of the movie Black Bear, and, of course, Langdon Boom on Letterboxd. Yep. No the, but that's fine. Um, Matthew, film guy, you're right, you're right. I messed that up last time. Get it right. That's the name my mother gave me. <laughs> Matthew T. Matthew T. Film guy. Um, <laughs> that right. stands for Tiberius. But go on. <laughs> I'm also here with Conan Neutron of Protonic Reversal Podcast, Conan Neutron and the Secret Friends, and Conan Neutron on Letterboxd. Big, uh, right. big. You're not big the only one on Letterboxd anymore, Langdon Boom. Come on. <laughs> By far. And of course, from the chat and also the podcast, Jay Hutch talks too much. Jay Hutch, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. I, I was going to say, I, I can't help but feel that the uh, the live chat section is going to suffer considerably tonight. There's nobody, we're, we're at zero people watching live right now. Oh, no. You got your, you got your one audience member here. <laughs> Our one That's what happens when you draft audience. the MVP of the chat. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, have all of you guys seen this movie multiple times, or is this anyone's first time uh, watching it? I, I, Second time. This is my first time, but but uh, I, in my defense, I have watched a lot of Tiny Toons and Animaniacs, so I felt like I've seen this before. <laughs> so I'm aware of the references, so that's pretty much the same thing. Right? Paramount, yeah. I've heard of that. They make Star Trek. I've, I've told people I was ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille, a hundred times, so does that count? I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. Cedar. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get any close-ups from him. No way. Wide shots in the background. That's it. All right. Well, that's like that's like half this movie. I feel like this. I, I feel like this movie kind of pioneered um, the cameo the way that we see it now. Obviously, cameos have always been part of cinema. You know, for as long as um, there has been cinema, like they'll put people in from different movies and studios will try to promote things by giving, um, you know, actors jobs as extras or, you know, like all these all these different forms of cameos. But I feel like the, the cameos in this movie are very sophisticated because they're placed um, very purposely to like call back this nostalgia for um, silent for silent movie filmmaking um, in a way that right now I think is, is, is fascinating because I feel like cinema is kind of um, pushed into quadrants almost where silent movies and uh, black and white movies are seen for a lot of people as almost like the same thing. But there's that talky line. Like not not, but like you know what I mean. Like a lot of people, I, I feel like push that history down into like kind of th that's the black and white era, and this is the color era, or like those are old movies, or those are classic movies, and these are new movies. And I feel like this this movie is kind of its own because it's it's coming while the studio system is still very much around. It's not new Hollywood, but it but it still is um, in its own kind of time period where it's looking back on a time when you know it's a full generation after that silent film era. Well, that's kind of why to show I... you that Hollywood was willing to you know, defile its own corpse for uh, over uh, you know seventy five years already here. So, <laughs> and when Norma talks about like the the new like she keeps talking about how these new stars are not like what they used to be, which is funny because these would have been this movie would have been made at a time when the stars were I think the kind of people that we typically now think of as the golden age stars like Humphrey mm -hmm. Bogart and Cary Grant and Jimmy Stewart which for her are, are not as good as the silent era stars. Yeah, yeah. William Holden. And Holden, yeah, yeah. William Holden's kind of- And I, I think, think a lot is... of it- Oh, go ahead, Andy. 
No, I, I was just going to use the, the the buzzword of the time because everybody's talking about intertextuality of of like the Star Wars movies and intertextuality of the Marvel movies and whatnot, which which I, I think it's getting overused. Oh, you'll never hear me say but, that word. But, don't but <laughs> to be honest, um, and that's uh, th there was a lot of inter. If anyone's <laughs> going to use intertextuality, that would be him. No, no. But no but text. I would say that this is actually a really good example of intertextuality because you you have you know a silent film star uh, who is a has been at the time, uh, you know playing this iconic role and and you know us as the viewer today we don't necessarily appreciate the the um, uh, the fact that that you know that that, that meta casting of her and, and the uh, the meta burying of the the. Uh, the monkey at the beginning of it, and then there's like a monkey that you're gonna see later in the, uh, um, and the the, the, the silent movie montage. <laughs> Wait, the what? The bearing monkey. of the what? Monkey. Was monkey. Fantasy, monkey. But okay, I just want to get that out of the way. By the way, that is one of the creepiest. Every time I watch this movie, because I've watched it a couple times this week after watching it, you know, um, back in college, I think was the last time I watched it, and the first time, um, like so, like a few years ago. Um, you know, every time you see that shot of the chimpanzee like lying out on the on the thing and the eyes are closed and it's like it looks like taxidermy almost and like sewed together, it gets creepier every time you see it. Well, I found it heartbreaking. And actually the one moment that I was pulled out of it and I thought, here's where I will bring my modern sensibility and judge this movie harshly is when he goes, Is her life so empty? Why? Just because she loves a, uh, a chimpanzee as much as another person would love uh, a child or a spouse that was a line that i could not uh you know get on the, the the movie side with but besides that i understood it it's purpose of the film uh you know well, he's also a, kind of brought as a, in as, as the new monkey right like the chim or the chimpanzee kind of has deceased and he he appears just as the chimpanzee is being buried he's kind of the new chimpanzee and you can kind of imagine like there's a there's a there's a chance that she maybe killed the chimpanzee or something happened to the chimpanzee and it maybe i don't know if she necessarily killed it but like the same way that the, the chimpanzee died in love making i don't know i was gonna say this, this sounds like a side quest and or spinoff but yeah go ahead. it's like how macaulay culkin was replaced the bubbles in michael jackson's house Oof, yeah that you just thank you and scene yeah. <laughs> things well, just got fun, crazy that was it drop it walk hey, away i warned you for i warned you conan i was gonna bring a uh uh, crazy, uh, uh, high heat. Yet, yet, yet I still was not prepared. <laughs> no, it's been a good 18 episode run. Um, yeah, you know, <laughs> back it up, folks. Sorry, we got to wrap it up now. <laughs> but no, so I think, but you know, it's interesting the same way that he appears just as this um, chimpanzee has passed away, and then at the and end she of the dresses movie, him up right in the little suit, same yeah. Same. And at the end of the movie, you see, I mean, well, the beginning of the movie and the end of the movie, you see Joe Gillis dead and, in, in, you know, in a splayed out in the pool. Like, so you can almost think that all these things for her have a very short uh, shelf life, I think. Often way. homaged ever... that scene, too. That scene is often reused or homaged all over the place. Many other movies, TV shows. And but still, Tiny what I noticed, like we watching it is still a powerful scene. You're like, oh, wow. Like it catches your attention immediately. With the floating body that, yeah. that the, above, below the shot below, yeah, you know, I didn't, I, I, I hadn't seen the movie in I don't know twenty years or so. I saw it when I was in film school, and I had, so I did a quick little uh, review of the Wikipedia, and it was interesting to read that they did that with a mirror. They tried to actually submerge the the camera, and they didn't like what they got with it, so they laid a mirror on the bottom of the pool, 
and then shot at an angle. Oh, wow. So they could see from underneath him and put the guys behind him. I yeah. thought that was pretty cool. In terms of Back on the air, guys. I learned something. I thought they hired a Silky as a as a cameraman to uh you know uh, like a mer person. And <laughs> that, that, that was how we were gonna tie tie the Silkies in this episode. Yes. <laughs> but you know, to go back to what you were saying, I think there's a lot more to mine about the whole like references and stuff. There's all these people playing themselves. I mean, mm -hmm. you've got Eric von Stromheim not playing actually Eric von Stromheim, but playing someone just like Eric von Stromheim, yeah. ostensibly, if, if he had, you know, given up his career to become this woman's manservant. But you do have the real Cecil B. DeMille uh, for many people who are, you know, film normies, like basically a one generation's synonym for film director, right? Like the Cecil B. DeMille. Uh, mm -hmm. And you also had uh, the real Hedda Hopper, which I thought that was an interesting bit of like, you know, she was the original Twitter. She was the original, uh, you know, TMZ and so on and so forth. She was like, we, the, we, uh, we watched a, we watched a, a clip of um, when we were talking to uh, Joseph McBride, which, you know, I should have plugged at the beginning of the uh, episode, um, you know, like halfway through this, we're going to have our conversation with uh, Joseph. McBride an actual and, expert. An actual <laughs> and, uh, and, and JG <laughs> Michael, scholar. come on. And we're going to um, premiere that. But, uh, you know, we watched this clip where um, Billy Wilder, who, you know, was both the writer, one of the writers um, and, and director, uh, was talking about how originally what they wanted to do is they wanted to have um, Hedda Hopper sitting on the bed and they wanted to have um, uh, Luella Parson, who was her big rival, who they both like were the big gossip column queens of, of the time. And they had this um, this disgustingly like vile rivalry, like. If, if you can think of like there being two TMZs that are constantly battling it out, like TMZ and like National Enquirer or something, if 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 they were Res kind Hilton of, and yeah. somebody else, yeah, exactly. And so Res Hilton, literally anybody, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they have this famous uh, rivalry, and what he wanted to originally do is he wanted to have uh, Hedda Hopper on one bed saying on the phone, and then she, he wanted to have um, uh, Luella Parson, um, and she like they're both trying to get on the phone at the same time. Um, instead of that bit at the end where he like it's a, a police a police officer and uh, or you know so and so they were going to be having them fighting over the over the the phone at the very end and like basically they're fighting over the story and um, I guess Luella Parson realized that Hedda Hopper was actually like a good and trained actress so she wouldn't she wouldn't do it because she thought she was going to be showed up. It's probably a smart move. Yeah, you know, but, but also you know, it was weird is you got you got um. Buster Keaton, not even named, not right? Like one of the greatest yeah. film actors of all time, film artists of all time, directors, and then he's just like waxwork card player with one yeah. line. Right. It'd yeah. be like it'd be like George Clooney showing up now and just like a bit part, like, was that George fucking Clooney? Like <laughs> but when, yeah. you, and, and when, you the, when you see the shot of him too, you I think you're supposed to like that audience would have recognized who he was because it's kind of the way it's framed, it's like, oh yeah, this is Buster Keaton. Like you don't. And he have gives to that one look. He's like, pass. And he gives yeah. that one little Buster look, right? For right. like a half a second. It and does also, seem like really ahead of its time, though. In that, because I remember when I was a kid, there was a show on TV called The Larry Sanders Show, which at the time was like made all of these, you know, had had real people playing themselves, and and that was a real draw of that show. And then after that show everybody started to do it. I guess the Simpsons was doing it a little bit as well. 
But that seemed like a very 90s thing to me. Um, and so when I you, you see it happening in a 1950 movie, like obviously they were making movies about movies before that, like um, Sullivan's Travels or something like that. But I don't think that had as many sort of inside references as this movie does, where it's basically like the real life. And, and you know, it's, it's based around, I mean, Norma Desmond is played by uh, Gloria Swanson, who has an amazing career and her, her career doesn't stop because she's not like good at, at talking or, you know, playing a, a like vocal role. Her career actually stops because she got tired of fighting the um, kind of vocally fighting the, the Hays Code people, like the censors. And she kind of get, gets bled dry in this, um, in this like famous affair that she has with Joseph Kennedy, like, you know, decades before uh, JFK was president. And she has this like famous uh, decade, decade and a half long affair that almost takes his marriage and like, almost becomes public record where um, Joseph Kennedy wants to get into the movie business and puts all of his money into her pretty much or, but then also at the same time, he's bleeding her dry. So she pretty much gets bled dry from her bank account um, by Joseph Kennedy. Who's big thing is like, he's the inside guy who can get the, you know, get you around the Hays code people, but it turns out he couldn't get her around the Hays code people. And her, it became like this constant struggle with uh, where she's fighting against the Hays code people as a producer, which at the time United artists, um, was giving you know these these you know giving uh, stars like creative control of their own work. So she leaves her um, Cecil B. DeMille uh, contract to kind of take on her own role as a producer, one of the first you know pioneering uh, women producers. And it turns into this nonstop fight against the Hayes Code, which is just starting at that point and doesn't have the power that it did for the next three decades. So it's this interesting thing that kind of gets glossed over as, oh, well, she's, you know, she really just doesn't like words because she's so theatrical and so good at the, 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 the silent film part of it. You know, her eyes are wide and she's constantly, yeah, like she's doing the, the spider hands and like, you know, like the, the truth is that she actually <laughs> did, did like have a, 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 you know, a career in, in, in talkies as they were called at the time. And, um, and just got tired of fighting for these creative projects that she really wanted to be part of. Um, and, you know, so it's the, Relatable. One, of the last, <laughs> one of the last uh, films she does. You and the Hays Code are like this constantly. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm just so curious. The, do you know what what was her fight with the Hays Code? Like, what was it that she wanted to do that was not allowed under the code? Well, this is the interesting part. The, the final, really, like, the, the I guess... The peak of, of the end is this movie, um, Queen Kelly, which is you, you see in Sunset Boulevard. It's the movie that she plays on the projector. And the director of that movie, um, Eric von Strynum, is, is, the, is the same guy that plays Max, um, like her, you know, her first Stroheim. husband. Stroheim. Stroheim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> um, Eric Stroheim <laughs> is, you know, so she's fighting against him because he wants to do, he wanted to do a scene in a brothel pretty much where, um, you know, they're in a dance hall and it's, and it's supposed to be a, a, a brothel and you're supposed to get that implied. And she's like, there's no way this can get around the Hayes code. Um, yeah. So, so, so she was real, she was a real dirty girl. Yeah. And she was, she was daring really her art, you know, her art was always daring. She, um, was promised by Joseph Kennedy that she could get this, uh, big, this big, um, picture that was pretty much about, um, a prostitute through the Hayes code censors. And it there we ended go up again. being this huge, this huge fight between her and the Hayes Code. Um, so, so she went. She went. That was she pretty went woman, from, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it took forty-five years, but she that long. she went from she went from sleeping with Joe Kennedy to supporting Ronald Reagan. That was her arc. 
Yeah, that was her political arc. It's not that big of a shift, really, when you think there's some horseshoe theory there somewhere, I think. But remember, <laughs> let's let's forget and please note that I'm not trying to defend Reagan. He was an actor, he was from that world. And so a lot of How times dare would, you say that. How there was a little bit of an affinity that. just because they're like, Oh yeah, Ronnie. Yeah, I know him. You know, I was in Yeah, no, he was a good guy uh, to a certain point till he till he, you know, got well, his legs and arms cut show. off in that fire plant. Yeah, friend friend of show, um, Ronald Reagan. Which, by the way, I found three different connections to uh, Reagan within this. And uh, the first one is um, Gloria Swanson being Reagan's, you know, uh, chairwoman of, of senior citizens or whatever. But then also Luella Parsons, who was supposed to be, um, you know, who we were just talking about, the gossip columnist, kind of was the one, according to that show, uh, Showtime doc documentary that came out, was the one that kind of um, shaped Reagan's career and, like, created the myth around him and introduced him to his first wife. So that that was the second. Jane Wyman. Yeah. And um, and it also and also she was the one that promoted his uh, relationship with Nancy Reagan at first, so you know she kind of they, they were oh, from I the see. same hometown. Um, I'm trying to think of the third one between them, but anyway, there was there was like there was, there were all these connections that we were finding when we were in, when we were in that conversation. So when we premiere that, um, you know, it, it'll definitely be in there. We talked a lot about uh, Reagan and the um, like. You know when he was when he was president of the the Screen Actors Guild and you know his role in um I, we didn't talk a lot about it but we talked briefly about his role in in informing to the FBI and all of that. I, look I have to I have to say I was I was initially worried about doing this podcast after Forrest um, uh, was giving it up for uh, Kissinger a few weeks ago and now <laughs> now we're apologizing for Ronald Reagan. This is very this is very. When did I apologize for Ronald Reagan? No, not you. It wasn't you. Oh. It wasn't you. No, oh, just... when, when Matthew Film Guy over there said he was good up to a certain point. I feel like first Kissinger, I, yeah. then Reagan. I don't know. It's, it's worrisome. My apologies. Well, I think it's part about Joe McCarthy in the interview. Um, so this is so this is the uh, this is Kelly. Um, I have tips of the uh, Gloria. Um, oh, we, lost, we lost you there for a second. process. Oh, I have I have two clips right here of um, I have two clips of uh, yeah. This is, so this is the Queen Kelly uh, clip. I'm ready. Queen Kelly is not a finished picture. The only thing that was rather um, difficult at the time was that he was uh, taking longer to do one third of the picture. We, of course, pictures have budgets and picture, that means a certain length of months to shoot a picture. Uh, I happened to become worried about what was being shot. And since the two people that were being put in charge didn't seem to have any control over the situation, I walked off the set one morning <clears throat> after it was very early in the morning and I had just had a cup of tea for breakfast and uh, went to the dressing room, my bungalow, where I lived actually, uh, and called New York and called the bankers and said, I think you'd better come out here because I'm worried. Much of the stuff that we're making in this dance hall quote, question mark, um, I think is censorable and uh, the Will Hayes office will never allow us to, to show it. And um, <clears throat> not only that, but we have, uh, 20,000 feet for the first third of the picture. And uh, if we continue like this, we're going to be all year. And it's going to cost more than I wish to be responsible for. 
So like that, the bankers were there. They didn't have jets in those days, but they might. They it, it, they were there before I knew it, as if they'd come by their own kites or their own steam. And so we then I, as a matter of fact, I never saw von Stroheim from that day until actually we were making Madame. Uh, we were making uh, Sunset Boulevard. So yeah, I find that interesting. Just like the amount of tension that must have been um, inherent in, in uh, you know, they're they're appearing together, and you you can notice that um, when they play Queen Kelly in in the actual movie, although they don't set it up that way, you know, when they play that movie on the projector, um, they're like, oh well, you know, Max was behind behind the like projector setting it up. You don't see him in that scene. So I, I wonder if there's some um, if there's some moment where you know they were like, oh well, we can't be in the same scene when that happens. <laughs> I think maybe you see him for a second in the booth. Yeah. But I mean, that's still, I think is its own, its own shot, you know? So, um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so this is, this is a second clip of, of her talking about this and the process of, um, I split them up because we only had an hour earlier with, uh, yeah, we, we only had an hour with Joseph McBride and I didn't want to, I didn't want to overwhelm him with clips, but, um, this is the second one. Sunset Boulevard. We didn't have a finished script, and uh, so many suggestions were made. And uh, von Stroheim, who couldn't help himself, he was creative. He made suggestions, and I can remember Billy Wilder saying, "Oh, that's wonderful, but it doesn't further the story, and we don't have the footage for it." But he came up with one. He came up with a magnificent idea that the the fan mail that was sent to me, if you will recall, I thought was fan mail. He was writing them. This was von Stroheim's idea. And this was a magnificent idea. It was wonderful. Ah, we had nice times on the set, and I have wonderful recollections. And then after the picture, I met him here in France, you know. We even talked about doing something about Queen Kelly, making a new story around it seeing if we couldn't save this beautiful material, which he had done where I was a convent girl. But unfortunately, I lived in America, he lived here, and then he left us. Yeah, I included that little bit at the end because um, I think it's interesting um, that her eyes are so prominent um, within all of these silent films that she's in. And I think that it's really cool that um, Billy Wilder knew to exploit that uh, throughout the movie. You know, as she's going crazier and crazier, her eyes get bigger and bigger. And you, you really, you know, you see that it's really all about the eyes in silent filmmaking. It's all about the gestural movements. It's all about, you know, um, all of these physical, like things, like physical, physical features, I guess the physicality of it, um, rather you know, than this. Let me just ask you a question because this was something that I was sort of puzzling. This being the the first time I've seen it again in twenty years, 
to what extent was she being self-parodying? You know, to what mm -hmm. extent were they exaggerating her movements and her eyes and her mannerisms to create this effect of like, this is a woman trapped in this old style of acting? Uh, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure if we were meant to, because listen, our feelings towards her go all through the gamut. You, right, your heart yeah. breaks for her. You think she's terrible. You think she's pathetic. You think she's triumphant. You think she's crazy. You think she's, you know, all these things. But, you know, is she meant to look silly or is she, you know, right? Is it, is the movie um, teasing her a little bit or that style? I wasn't, this was a point of confusion for me this time through. I wonder what you guys think. Well, so, there's a pastiche too of of uh, like Mary Pickford, like Clara Bow, et cetera, et cetera. Like the like it's sort of like the the character is, is like a pastiche of these different types of folks. But it also Gloria Swanson is that person as well. So it's like it, it's something where it, it, you see somebody playing a role that's also kind of them. Like I'm going to use one my one now just from when the favorite types of movies that came out recently. Like when Robert Downey Jr. played Tony Stark. You know, it worked because he was an alcoholic smartass, you know, that was. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Eight, all, 831 and, and we got a Marvel movie reference. There you exactly. go. <laughs> she did it. But I don't, I mean, it we just saw that interview. Part. She doesn't talk like this and she yeah. doesn't do yeah. this, you know, so it is a style. Um, I just wonder if they're, you know you know making like the, the hit cool kids at the at the pharmacy uh, you know at the drugstore uh thinks she's you know uh square man you know because but, she acts like that or is that but at the time of is? like talkies as they call them right like uh the idea was that's everyone was like, looking back at all these silent movies as like oh that's all they do it's all big motion right. and this and that so that might have been like leaning into it almost as as sort of like oh you think it was like exaggerated I'm gonna give you exaggerated yeah right. and that, it's no that's satire it definitely it definitely is parodying that style and I mean you you watch the interview she's nothing like that she you know what I mean she's not she like even her voice is nothing like that she just has kind of a, a normal voice and the struggle that she has is against the the haze code sensors um, in real life which you know still exist at the point where Sunset Boulevard is made for another decade. Like, you know, the, the Hays Code really disappears after 1960 with Psycho coming out and um, like that, that year of filmmaking. So I, I think that she's definitely parodying herself. The part of it that's real, obviously, is that she's kind of this, this past figure that hasn't worked in, you know, 20 years and really is making a return through this movie. And obviously they're watching her actually act, um, but it, it's kind of like, what if what if she was the character that she acted like in all of these movies still and wasn't kind of like a more fully formed person decades later? And what if she was kind of still trapped in that in that space um, rather than being like, a, you know, I, she was she was making she made a shitload of money. She invested her money during like World War Two. I, I read today um, she like she was she was paying for um, Jewish scientists during World War Two. Uh, to escape from Germany. She was uh, starting these like kind of startup style businesses where she would give money and, and help them escape to America. Um, she she had all of these business ventures going on. She was making a Does show. she have oil pumping in Bakersfield? Pumping, pumping, pumping. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's a good point. Like, because Gloria Swanson didn't go the Norman Desmond route at all. Like she was, by the time she got the call for this, it was like, she was already like deep in like a bunch of other stuff. She had basically decided to move on, but she was so intrigued by like, Oh, this this is interesting. Sure, yeah, this looks like a good role. I'll do it. Which I think is is fascinating in and of itself, really. 
Well, it is. And that's another still, thing I learned from the Wikipedia that, that they gave it, they, they came up to uh, either Clara Bow or, or Mae West. And Mae West was just like, I'm still like, she didn't want to do it because she thought it was. Oh, no. The, the story of it, the story of it actually goes kind of deeper than that. We talked about it with, um, you're going to see it in a little bit, but we talked about it with uh, Joseph McBride kind of went into it because he talked about it with uh, um, a lot of people that had kind of been through the process because he's written that Billy Wilder book. Um, first, so the first idea was that they had um, Mrs. Marlon Brando were going to be those two roles, but it wasn't going to be like a horror movie, which is what it became. It was going to be like a comedy with Mae West as the older woman and Marlon Brando as the, like the younger man. And at the last minute it got pulled. So they kept going with that idea. And um, actually, I think I, I have the, I have the, the clip where uh, Billy Wilder talks about this, but um, basically they went to Mary Pickford, who was like an iconic actress at that time, still from her, from her silent movie roles. And, um, Billy Wilder and his writing partner, um, Charles Bracken, um, they, they had, they, Bracken, it, so they, they had this, they had this idea that um, they were going to go to Mary Pickford and ask her. And at the last minute during this uh, interview between the two of them, uh, he pulls the plug and goes, we can't ask her to do this. She's like too iconic. <laughs> like this is, this is like disrespectful to even ask um, her to be part of this. So this is, this is that clip, but Fairbanks, uh, Mary Pickford, what was the name of Big Fair? And, and uh, I, uh, uh, not me, Bracken, the Republican. He started telling her the story. And I was blanching. I said, oh my God, she finds out that she's going to pay the guy to, to sleep. And I said, Charlie, I think we made a mistake. I, I, I think that this is below the level of me. Bigfoot. Miss Bigfoot is, in, is in, uh, and I can't see. Is it? This is impossible. Is Forgive us, please. Let's go, Charlie. Let's go quick. And we just kind of. Then uh, we had. There was just every actress with a little. Then we got Swanson, and we would go to the front office. I think it was Barry De Silva. Then it was in the studio. She says, "For Christ's sake, Swanson, that's a piece of used toilet paper. You crazy." She's acting all over the place like this. She says, but that's what I want. I want to <laughs> act this, playing how it sounds, and we just see the, the exaggerations, the wildness, the craziness. Now, as they write about the picture or the play, it says, of course, it is lacking the genius of Gloria Swanson. It was, it, we were very lucky. This kind of, it was one of those things, you know, where we just kind of, uh, 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 it, it, falling into a tub of butter, you know, it just it was easy. It, it just worked itself into something real and in something that could happen, and people that we knew and we did not lie about them. Uh, and, and 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 we had, you know, if you have if you have a picture, you know, where where the the the, the leading man, the leading man's uh, line was very simple. I came to Hollywood because I wanted a pool. I got the pool. And I died in the pool. Once we had that, you know, we 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 we, we had the, the, the whole thing. It was very difficult. It was very difficult because because you know, if you make a picture that plays uh, plays uh, uh, among the, uh, at the dentist convention in Albany, you know, they will believe it. They don't know how. But pictures, you know, in relations in front offices, and you would like to be critical, but uh, you 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 cannot you cannot kind of. Uh, uh, 
do Emil Zola's Jacques, you know, against Hollywood. That's, it's too easy to. But in any case, after it was finished, Mr. Mr. Louis B. Mayer, having seen that at the, at the showing at Paramount, I heard him talking to his uh, henchmen, their whole group of, of Louis B. Mayer people. He says, that son of a bitch Wilder, he says. He's a foreigner, he says. He, we let him in. We, 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 gave him, we, gave him, we gave him a life. We gave him a family. And now he's biting the hand that's been feeding him. And I, I, I got up to him and the, the, the retinue of his. He says, Mr. Louis, we may have, why don't you go and fuck yourself? My name is Wilder and I did it. <laughs> I mean, it was not that he was a guest, but the people around him. <gasps> Les Majestés, what I have said, I have said to, to Queen Victoria, oh, go take him shit or something. <laughs> Uh, Billy Wilder's the best. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I do hope Gloria Swanson didn't see that though. She just. She does not yeah. come off uh, great. There. I think she. I think she had passed away by the point that that was filmed. Um, Billy Wilder obviously was younger and you know lived longer. Well, she lived to be in her nineties, so I'm not saying Billy Wilder lived uh, longer in that sense. I think he died at 89, but um, you know lived longer year by year. Um, than, than, than she did, I think. But Mary, um, Mary Pickford is too good for this. Go find Gloria Swanson. <laughs> the piece and he knew what he wanted. <laughs> he wasn't <laughs> nice about it, but he knew what he wanted. That's true. And that, that clip does kind of suggest that that was her kind of acting style, I guess, to some degree, or at least Wilder seemed to think so. Well, or I mean, I don't, I don't know if it implies that, um, or if it implies more that. Um, you know, he wanted her to act that way and he wanted her to act like this, you know, faded silent film star. She clearly isn't like that in any of the interviews that she did no. after that. But in well, the I other think... films she's done, I think, is what he was referring to, that this was her old style. Yeah. yeah definitely more exaggerated. Was. And, you know, and, and like, again, we're looking at with a, with a modern uh, viewpoint, but it was a big deal culturally for there to be like people talking in motion pictures. And it was a huge, like a sea change in, on the level of which we can't really comprehend because we weren't there, of course, uh, that I'm aware of. Uh, and I think the fact that there is like an element of like low grade farce to it. Like, I think she, that's one of the reasons why she decided to just be like a more exaggerated version of who they thought she was. And that's mm -hmm. one of the things that makes it so fantastic. Cause I mean, the entire like relationship, uh, you know, like toxic and almost like predatory, emotionally predatory in a way, uh, in, in a way, like it, it's more than in a way. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it I guess really it's was toxic and emotionally predatory. But yeah, I think like, it's a tribute to her talent as an actual artist, as an actor, that she could do all that. And I, like I was moved by her uh, for yes. several reasons on several occasions, like literal tears flowing just even though she is this, I don't know, cartoonish kind of person, uh, she was a real pain. person inside. Yeah. And do you know, something that's crazy is that obviously in this movie, they make a big deal of the fact that she had three husbands before. Um, her, her In real life, she had six husbands throughout her life. Wow. She was on husband. Nope, nobody would have believed that. That would have been too outlandish. <laughs> but I mean, well, also, you know, I think a couple of the husbands were after this movie was filmed anyway. But like, 
you know, but this like, led to at least two or three more being available. <laughs> <laughs> um, like on top like of you know, affairs, like bets. yeah, go ahead. <laughs> no, but like on top of affairs with, with like people like uh Joe Kennedy, like you know, so six husbands on top of that, and at the end of her life, she was in her 90s, she was still having an on and off relationship with her husband, one of her, her last husband. So she, like, you know, at 90, I should hope it's even somewhat on would be amazing if she was having it. <laughs> <laughs> and she, she had a very interesting um she was like an early health food person like even you know decades before really that became like a trend like well, that reminds me of that scene where she's undergoing the like the youth lift and like all the electrodes and like the 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 chin lifter and all these things the, the height of 1950s youthful uh, uh looking technology that was incredible sequence which, which is somewhat been... homaged in things like brazil right i mean like that's like such a clear right homage. But that also would have been incredibly, um, incredibly, um, I, I don't know, like almost um, alarming to audiences, I think, when this movie came out. Like, I, I don't think anybody, we were, we were talking about this earlier, I think, like, I don't think anybody necessarily knew that, um, like, I don't think anyone really ever looked at that, like a Star's Beauty Regiment. Like, you know what I mean? Like, there was kind of an understanding that, that Star's looked like that. I don't know. You were there, not me. I don't know if that was true or not. <laughs> I, but I'll tell you this. She was, look. Uh, um, the the, uh, the 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 young writer she was said she was twenty two, William Holden was I think thirty two, Gloria Swanson was fifty. Okay, yeah, I'm I'm forty six. So if I'm thinking like you know, obviously in the years of Hollywood, way over the hill by forty. But so for fifty, it's not like she's you know this crypt keeper like sitting in her dank basement. Uh, it just was amazing to me that uh, it, you know. I guess it is that area where you're just on the edge of like, I, I can still hold on with all the technology at my disposal, you know, the $6 million mm -hmm. facelift, um, but that she was considered such a, an antique. I mean, who am I kidding? Like who's, who's a 50 year old. That's the equivalent in today's Hollywood. There is, there is nobody that's playing a, you know, they're, they're, they're moms, they're grandmas at this point, if you're 50. Or it's like the Irishman, where it's like maybe de aging to make everyone look like weird, like you know, movie. Uh, sorry, video game avatars. That's right. They, man, I look forward to Scorsese's next picture with uh, you know, all these old stars just in their prime. Why not? She could have had another twenty years on her career. And and you know, Scorsese is now going to have a uh, baby. Joe Pesci is a a baby on my God no, um, with the de aging. <laughs> um no i i think that but it's kind of talking about disposability in a way that you know i think a lot of older um women talk about in hollywood now like meryl streep like you know right. glenn Close, exactly. like actress like that have kind of been pretty vocal about the fact that roles um <laughs> have been you know pretty vocal about the fact that um that that uh after after a certain age i mean going into middle age those roles dry up and this movie is kind of commenting on that way ahead of its time because yes. Gloria Swanson, looking at her, like when you see her in pictures and you see her in these films, is incredibly beautiful and still is in this movie. I think. I mean, although they make her look as creepy as possible, but like she's, you know, she. But at, but the, at the time, she's like the most beautiful, uh, you know, young starlet you can possibly think of. And there's, I, I was listening to a, a podcast today where they were talking about how, um, I guess when, uh, when. Um, DeMille comes up to her and goes um, and says something like, oh, hello there, young fella. It was like something that he actually said to her um, as like a, a name because she was like a, a daring young fella. Like 
she was the most uh, brash and like daring and really like the, the most beautiful starlet of her day. Um, and then by the time, like, you know, she even did like a TV pilot at one point. She did, she did all these like different other projects, but you know, between 1930 and 1950 really wasn't in movies. Um, and not because she couldn't talk because there actually is a couple movies where she did get into talkies and, uh, she's actually pretty good at acting in them, but she kind of, I think it exhausted herself. I think you're right. It definitely was about. Uh, you know, it was that criticism that in, in a way is what I think uh, Louie was talking about, biting the hand that feeds, uh, you know, that Hollywood will chew you up and spit you out. And when they're done with you, it's as if you never existed. But what was one of the greatest moments in the whole movie is when she goes on the set and like the two old stage hands, the old security guard, and she gets a, a, a reminder that there are some people who do remember her and think of her fondly. That was like one of the most moving moments of all of this is that even though the business might say we're marketing you out of here and, and we need to get the next and the new, there are people who, and especially in today's nostalgia culture, we're realizing that you could just mine that stuff forever if you're actually smart about it, but that she had true fans and people still loved her who remembered her. It's just the culture was like on this conveyor belt that's just like, Whoa. And, well, and yeah. I, think, no, well, I was gonna, I was gonna say that um, I was reading an article. I'm embarrassed to say I think it was in the Guardian, but I was reading this article about Sunset Boulevard, where uh, it, it basically it made a, an interesting comparison between um, Nora and Joe because they're kind of almost parallels in this movie. The movie starts off. Joe hasn't had a success in a while. Obviously, it hasn't been as long of a time as Nora, but it has. It's been. You know, it's been some time since he's been successful. He's trying to get work. He can't get work. Um, and then he finds uh, he finds Nora, and he starts to help her with her script. And then later on in the movie, Betty comes along and helps Joe with his script. Um, and Betty has her own story of wanting to break into the acting business and not being able to break into it because first of her nose, and then they just didn't want her. And this whole movie is just filled with character after character who have want to be part of this business, but keep getting shuffled out of it. And uh, Norm is the most tragic. Well, I, I mean, Norm is tragic, but then Joe ends up dead as well. So, you know, there's a, a few of these kind of there's tragic. There's no more tragic than dead, I think. Everybody ends up probably being dead because this movie, um, you know, <laughs> they're all dead. <laughs> it's, it's like all those vaccine takers in the 1900s are for, uh, for smallpox. They're not alive anymore. Yes. Sorry, it's not you. Fifty years. I think if I don't take the COVID vaccine, I'll still be alive. Let me tell you. Let me tell you. We didn't need vaccines. We had faces. Let me tell you, friend. We're all dead. Everyone, see? Everyone, everyone that took that vaccine now, they're dead. Nineteen eighteen. <laughs> um, no, but I, I and I think that I think that another thing that um, is shown throughout this movie is that the skill set. Um, for silent movies, like that. By the way, Nancy Olsen, according to Wikipedia, is still alive. She's ninety-three. She was. Uh, she was. Yep. She was married. She was married to um, the one of the, the writers of uh, My Fair Lady. And just as this movie came out, um, My Fair Lady, I think, was debuting on uh, either West End or Broadway or something, and was dedicated to her. Or within a couple years of this movie coming out, anyway, which is um, a fun fact that I learned from the uh, the the Amazon Prime um, trivia. <laughs> I love that, the X-ray. I learned a lot yeah. about the X-ray. 
Another, another thing that I learned from actually from the X-ray in this is that um, Cecil B. DeMille, uh, for his for his cameo in this, was paid uh, ten thousand dollars for one day of shooting. That's how much he asked to be in this in this movie. And then they needed to get like a final close up, and he decided, all right, I'll be in your movie with another close up, another ten thousand dollars for one more day of shooting, just this one shot. They ended up giving him, I guess, a like a Cadillac or something, or like. Or like they gave him a car and they gave him three thousand dollars, but it was like a six thousand dollar car. So essentially, they like caved into his demands. He's no dummy. You can't out pimp <laughs> a pimp. <laughs> but let's yeah. go back. Let's go back to the tragic thing because I like that. There's more there because you have you know because Joe is actually sort of a conniver, right? Like he he starts off just trying to get money for his car. Like I don't think he's thinking this is a career break for me. He he's he's just a, a gigolo, really uh, at the beginning. Side hustle. Right, just just straight looking for the cash. Right, he hides his car, uh, you know, that's being repossessed, and it just he stumbles into this, you know, crazy scenario, which is like you know almost three's company esque in its like unlikelihood. Uh, but you know, then when he starts to get in too deep, he's like, well, this is you know, he starts to think maybe this is could be something, but he's he you know, it's like. It's too, it's a mutual usury. Like, this is a question in my mind, you know, like two people who uh, basically when soon as one says, like, I want off this mutual usury, then you can't get out. Right. But I think he does do the one noble thing, which is to tell, uh, uh, I forgot the Nancy Olson's character's name, but the, the young writer, like, what, what was it? Betty? Yeah. yeah. Betty. If it wasn't Betty, it should have been Betty. But, uh, <laughs> you know, look at, now. I'm, I am trash. I am filth. You don't want anything to do with me. And uh, go hang out with Dragnet uh, um, uh, and, you know, give him just your facts, ma'am. Uh, that's another thing, by the way, just like him playing this sort of like kooky, young, like not at all what he turned into for his like sort of iconic role. But go be with this good, good natured schlub. Kind of in this, he kind of looks like uh, like Jerry Lewis a little bit. I was thinking he looked like Bob Denver. He's like got a Gilligan quality, but yeah, yeah, but, no, hundred percent. But so he does the right thing, but by her, she, I was thinking she, Richie she, Cunningham. Richie Cunningham. These are all good references, like literally <laughs> Richie Cunningham at, at just the a bunch of goofs. Yeah, right. <laughs> but but she, uh, Betty is open about. She's like, this isn't for you. This is for my career. Like she actually is above board with the fact that this isn't. Yes, she falls in love with him, and that you know that will there won't they is like an element just that the movie. There's like hated. there's like a weird amount of sexual tension from the very beginning, though. Of like course, they're, at, the, of they're course. at that party and they're like doing the weird voices, and like I still like you know, he almost kissed right her in the in the, in the yeah. bathtub. Uh, but but he yeah, knows no, like their this... chemistry was great. I mean, just just fantastic. <laughs> yeah, and I wanted them to fuck in the end. <laughs> <laughs> all right i'm putting that in my diary tonight but i'm just saying like that's the the moral quandaries there he he resists that one so he's not a total a-hole right like for the well he's a part. gigolo that can't commit to either either one right like he, he's a he's a gigolo that can't commit to being a gigolo he can't commit to this um life of usury that he's kind of been reduced to and in its own way that's its own tragic story because you know he's 31 and he seems like he's already dried up creatively and the the hollywood system I mean, at the beginning, and I, I made this joke earlier during the uh, Joseph McBride thing, which is funny that that's premiering in the future because, you know. You didn't I, hear it. It's new to us. Time travels a bitch. Well, well, like, so, so I made this joke earlier where um, where when, when he says at the beginning, when he's like, oh, well, either my ideas were, were not creative enough. And he's like, pauses. Or he's like, oh, or they were too creative. I'm like, were they, though? 
Like you seem a little lazy with these ideas. But anyway, he well, he's is loaded. At, sounds amazing. I, yeah, I he's at the point where he's trying to write trash. He's like, I tried for my you know Barton Fink uh, epic. Now I'm gonna try to the wrestling movie. You know, like I'm yeah. just gonna try to give him what they want. Right. And that's harder actually, to do than it looks. You know, which is actually really funny because we just had this the Joseph McBride conversation. He's going from uh, his book on Billy Wilder. His next book is on the Coen Brothers. So that's a that's an interesting uh, two, two genre hopping Hollywood guys that sort of had their own stamp on things. I get it. That's that are both doing the whole nostalgia for like you know not necessarily. I mean, I, I guess uh, Billy Wilder told um, Joseph McBride that this is his Valentine to uh, to classic Hollywood. <laughs> Wait, the, that that Sunset that. Boulevard is <laughs> some Valentine. <laughs> well, that's yeah. interesting because it's that's what's so funny about the thin skin of the, of the executives who are just like he's biting the hand. He's not really biting the hand; like he's he's sort of tweaking the hand, but it's not. It's a love letter in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's not like my bloody Valentine. It's it's a right. Sweet. It's not even Day of the Locust. It's not even. There's a million <laughs> other ones. It's not Sob. There's some really more scathing Hollywood satires. This is tame, relatively speaking. Uh, and it fits within this uh, noir tradition that's going on in the, I mean, 40s and 50s, which kind of is a, a disillusionment with everything. You know what I mean? Like, yes, why wouldn't, why wouldn't that up. yeah, well, like, what, like, why wouldn't the disillusionment um, also go into Hollywood? There's already a disillusionment with the government. There's a disillusionment with uh, society in general. There's a disillusionment with with law enforcement in a, in a kind of brilliant way because the Hays Code is still in force. You can't make your evil characters or your criminal characters into heroes. So, you know what I mean? If, the, if you're disillusioned by everything else, Double Indemnity is another Billy Wilder movie that's brilliantly cynical. Like um, I, I've been trying to bring up Double Indemnity the whole show, so I'm glad you finally did. Because <laughs> I think I'm going to get a chance otherwise. And, I love that movie. And, and right after Sunset Boulevard, he does Ace in the Hole, which is definitely yeah. a cynical movie, a really yeah. sort of angry movie. I just watched that last night, actually, and it, it made me it made me think because the whole movie is an indictment on the media, basically um, media selling to the sort of the, the lowest common denominator. And it made me think like Sunset Boulevard, there's these weird little comments about the media every now and then, like uh, the, the very beginning, you know, before you get this story blown out of proportion. Let me tell you it my way. You find out that Norma Desmond's career is kind of destroyed. Cecil B. DeMille suggests that it was her her press her press agents that kind mm -hmm. of destroyed her soul. Um, which which, if you look at the history of Gloria Swanson, it, um, is absolutely fucking devastating. She got um, an abortion. She was She was about to. She had a botched abortion um, during her career at one point um, during an affair, and the, and she was living in Paris at the time, or she was in Paris shooting a movie at the time. And they literally picked up on like during her life and death, like she might die from an infection from a botched abortion. You know, the same press agents are sitting there in real life going, uh, covering it in this like really rapacious, disgusting way. Yeah. And, and that was towards the end of that was like towards the end of her disillusionment with um, with Hollywood, where she's like, I don't want to fight like this anymore. Like, I don't want to fight the censors. I don't want to fight the press. So that part of it is kind is true. That's what happened to Steve Bannon, too, I think. <laughs> if i may real quick there was a point that would have made way more sense about five minutes ago when it was said but the whole the whole idea of uh the oh i'm just whatever i'm gonna write what the people want and that being like harder than it actually seems like it might be you can apply that to music as well like i've had this talk with a lot of music people people who even like had hits 
or whatever that it, it's real easy if you're like well i'm an artist like i would never lower myself to write something that sounds like you know the foo fighters or whatever the thing is it's actually kind of hard to do if it was really easy to do more people would be doing it but the worst thing is to try and to do it and to fail and so i think that that kind of gets at the center of the heart of like he doesn't even know if he's gonna be good enough to do that Right. <laughs> right. Like I tried to sell out, but I did it unsuccessfully. Wow. That is the saddest story. Well, I guess sad well, story is weird. Because, and it, it's interesting. It's incredibly interesting that the Joe Gillis character um, goes to sell out and like literally finds like the one, the one uh, script girl, or maybe not the one script girl, but like one of the script girls that really like care about whether or not a picture is good. Because I'm sure that there are several others, at least in his mind, that he's thinking like, nobody really gives a fuck. Like you can make a terrible movie and, no one's going to care. And I'm just going to do that. And my creative process is sapped. And he finds the one person that's like, listen, I've read your work before and I enjoyed it. And this sucks. Like that, that's kind of like a, that's like a lightning bolt moment. I think. Sure. Um, of course it is. Yeah. yeah. It's also meat cute. <laughs> I I totally thought you said Meat Cube for a second. And I was like, whoa, what's that movie? Is that a horror it's movie? My new film coming out, Meat Cube. <laughs> It's uh, it's Ice Cube's less known younger brother. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I know, I know, we have to wrap up soon, but I just wanted to say one more thing about we the can, film. We can, go, we can go for a few more minutes. No, um, no, we have to wrap. We have to. Wrap. All right, all right, all right. But uh, no, I'm <laughs> but the the um, I'm ready for my close up now. <laughs> <laughs> You're in close up. I'm in a wide. You're yeah. Andy's in the in the close up. But the whole the whole uh, disillusionment thing about film noir and, and and the cynicism and so on. I this is this has got that look and feel uh, thanks to the DP, like thanks to the way it's shot. Like it's all these kind of like high contrast stuff. Even the outside shots kind of look like it's dark. You know, the the morning is uh, the opening is it's a morning, but it's still like very very sort of uh, you know gray. The, the tones have that film noir look. But I, I feel like this is not quite, even though it has like the, the death of the character doing his own voiceover and all that classic kind of film noir stuff, this, and also I feel like other Billy Wilder stuff, this is like the, the, the um, it's not cynical, but it's like, it's like, you know, you, you prick a uh, idealist and you get a cynic or something like that, right? Like this is a guy who I think is really a, a, a sweet hearted artist, Billy Wilder, you know, like. So even his version of satire doesn't, it's not that dark. It's, it's, uh, it's wistful in some way. It has some quality to it that isn't full on just like nihilistic sort of post-war ennui, which maybe some of the other more classical examples of film noir do have. Because uh, this is, you it know, has he, heart. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it has heart. And he clearly loves the subject that he is lampooning. Like he's not this outsider. He's Billy Wilder, for God's sakes. It's, yeah. it's, it reminds me a lot of uh, Elmer Leonard, um, you know, like Elmer Leonard's a more modern tradition of, of this kind of um, bringing in humor to a, to a darker story. Uh, uh, but, Get but, Shorty you, right after this. You know, yeah. Yeah. I, and which I, I think the movie's actually better than the book. Um, the TV series good. is better. Than I'm not reading the way. book. So what? I said the what TV comment? series is better than both. It's actually really good. The, the TV oh, series wow. has nothing that to do with watch. anything. Uh, like, like, that's not series, true at all, but go ahead. It, it's it's in name only. No, that's not true. Um, go ahead. Oh no, I, I mean I mean like like uh you know because you're missing all the strengths of uh what makes Summer Leonard great in the uh, TV show. But anyways, the the um uh the, the movie I think captures what makes uh Elmer Leonard great get shorty. But you know just in general like like a lot of his writing there there is uh satire 
there there is humor there, there's this dark um you know uh you know great dialogue you know all the hallmarks of a billy wilder film you can find in uh, elmore leonard but it's kind of weird because it took elmore leonard like 40 years after um sunset boulevard uh, to, to figure this out. I mean, I mean, Elmer Leonard started writing Westerns in the fifties. So, so like, you know, he was a kind of contemporary of uh, Billy Wilder at, at, uh, you know, at the time, but you know, it took him a long time before he could figure out how to write his stories. Well, um, he found his voice late in life. Yeah. I mean, he did. He did. But I'm just looking at the list of Billy Wilder's like main credits. And it's, you've got like some of the all time classics of Hollywood cinema, Ninochka, double indemnity. You mentioned lost weekend, which they, amped before that and lost weekend is that's a there's like no cynicism and that's like a heart on the sleeve movie if there ever was one that's like a pure just open vein watch it bleed on screen kind of a movie for hollywood in the 40s ace in the hole stalag 17 sabrina some like it hot seven year ish i mean these are all you know they're the they're apartment. quality the apartment that's probably my all-time favorite one of all of them that that is a true love like lovely movie a movie about heart with heart and not trying to be uh, cynical and s smarter than the audience kind of a thing. So, uh, you know, I, I guess uh, I guess this is all just a tangent on, like, you know, the darkness or the cynicism of, of film noir. But I feel like it's almost a feint in this movie. Well, and we talked to, I mean, during our Joseph McBride uh, interview, because a lot of it is about um, Billy Wilder himself and, like, you know, what he went through in his career. And um, a, a big part of it is at one point kind of during the whole uh, HUAC, the whole whack, um, whack, whack. <laughs> the, the Al Pacino trials. Um, they were the, all out they were totally out of order. Um, during the during the House and American Activities Committee hearings, um, you know, when, or whack, as, or yeah, <laughs> um, you know, he kind of isn't necessarily targeted by it, but decides to lay off on some of his more critical. Um, you know his more critical filmmaking stuff and really you know when he pushes when he pushes the envelope he kind of lays off on after sunset boulevard um and so some of his um <laughs> so some of his uh you know some of his more uh i think lighthearted stuff comes in that period but um he's like i'm a jew but leave me alone <laughs> um but also you know he's not he's he's from Poland, you know what I mean? Like he's kind of a—he's—he's uh, he's not. Someone he's worse than a Jew. He's a foreign Jew. <laughs> How dare he? And well, but I mean, in the sense of like, you know, you're already under suspicion if you're from a different place. So, um, you know, and a Jew. And, but anyway, I digress. Yeah, you know. <laughs> so, so uh, Joseph McBride talked to us a lot about how he took off for Europe at some point. Oh yeah, that's right. He did, right? Going, he's like, like um, you know, really kind of laid off. Yeah. Um, so he kind of laid off on, on, on being as cynical as he could have been. And then, you know, towards the end of his life, he kind of becomes the, the uh, one of the first, uh, what I would call like master class style um, lecturers, where he goes around and, and did a lot of, because uh, he, he lived a long time and he ended up doing a lot of that. Uh, like, tour too. Yeah. Well, I mean, so he ended up doing a lot of that. Story. <laughs> a lot of the screenwriting, like this is how you screenwrite kind of things, which makes, which is interesting because in Sunset Boulevard, you know, with, uh, with the relationship between Joe and, and Betty, that's kind of what he's doing. You know what I mean? Like he's, he's seeing someone younger than him and he's kind of channeling his own. I think, I think Billy Wilder's kind of channeling his own career through Joe Gillis. And he's looking down, like the, the thing that really warms his heart and kind of melts it is the fact that she's a, a aspiring screenwriter that really cares about screenwriting still. 
um, and you know, is, is right now just a researcher, but like in that sense, like he ends up going uh, towards the end of his life. If you look up like his AFI stuff, like there's tons of interviews and he didn't really do that many interviews throughout his actual film career. But by the end of it, he's like teaching a lot of people how to screenwrite. Yeah, there's hope and optimism in her, right? That is absent in him because he's just been beaten the hell down. And in a way different way, you know, Norma Desmond has also, but there's like this kind of idea of still wanting to be adored, like the whole thing with the fan mail even, right? Mm -hmm. and, it was like, and it's like, oh, well, she's not even writing back with any of this stuff, but like, she wants now to know she, that the fans are there. Now she would have a reality show right about now in this time of her career. <laughs> they would come back in and be like, where is she now? She's in a house with Bronson Pinchot and can they survive? <laughs> <laughs> I would watch that. Greenlit, That's by the way, totally greenlit. <laughs> yeah. so this, is, this is the last clip I'm going to play. It's from one of those um, how to how to screenwrite uh, lectures. Um, this, this is this is this is a strange clip because it's uh, Billy Wilder towards the end of his life, realizing that he couldn't have made Sunset Boulevard without the studio system, and realizing that like a movie like this can't be made now because you know PC culture or whatever. No, he's realizing that a movie like this can't. It was, He's realizing a movie like this can't be made right now because the studio system doesn't exist. So the ability to get all of these different stars and all of this uh, past archive footage and, you know, like all of these different things that a studio could grab, um, you know, it, it couldn't have been made without. So it's kind of this codependent relationship that he himself had with the studios. That is an example. Uh, how long would it take to write that screenplay? Would it take six months? Would it take... Well, it, it 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 took it this 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 took a, a rather long time. It it was it was a complex character with uh, a complex uh, picture with with uh, complex characters that we had to kind of explore. But we were very lucky. This picture could not be made today. Look, look the difficulties they have with the state things. Uh, we needed we needed a studio where we had to photograph. Where we were in a studio at Paramount. We needed because that was her last director. We needed uh, Mr. DeMille. We got Mr. DeMille. Hello, Mr. DeMille. <laughs> it's good to see you. The last time I saw you was someplace very gay. I remember waving to you. I was dancing on a table. <laughs> a lot of people were. Lindbergh had just landed in Paris. We needed a guy who uh, is her valet, who's running the house for her, who is an old-time director, which we find out later, and was married to her. Well, we took Stroheim, and we had a picture that Stroheim shot with Gloria Swanson, Queen Kelly. So we could run that. We, we, we needed we needed Buster Keaton. We needed all kinds. H.P. Warner for that the, the bridge party there. We needed we needed a young unknown actor uh, who plays the, the 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 unemployed writer. And uh, if you want to, uh, 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 they kept they kept uh, the guard. And we found that that guy is. We had first we had uh, Montgomery Clift. Uh, it was a new thing from New York, and that was it. And, and, and that was like three days before we started shooting. Then his uh, agent, a lady, I forget her name, she said to Mister Mister uh, Montgomery Clift, he's uh, not going to be in the picture. I advised him that if he makes that picture where he is having an affair with a woman twice. His age, he is finished forever in Hollywood. Nobody would use him for any other picture. So the, the day before we started shooting, you know, uh, we got hold of a, a junior actor uh, under contract to Paramount and Columbia. I'd made one picture 
uh, what was it, the, 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 the golden gloves, some kind of a box. Golden gloves. So, so I, 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 I gave him the script. I said, hold. I gave him the script. Uh, and he came, he came back like an hour and a half later. He says, I must play that. Absolutely perfect. Just an unknown writer, you know, but he should be an actor also. Yeah, I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to argue with the maestro. But uh, there's a version of the you know reference movie that has been made. I mean, there's got there's dozens of them, right? They're, they're bringing mm -hmm. people back. It's like a it's like a whole genre right now. Nothing's coming to mind, but maybe there was a midpoint where it couldn't happen. But now it's like there's eight thousand celebrities you can reference that <laughs> you don't need yeah. Cecil B. DeMille. You just need you know a Gary Coleman. Well, Tarantino was kind of doing that. You know, it was kind of like the first in the modern era. I think. You know, with John Travolta, because like John Travolta's career was dead at that point, and you know, all of a sudden he started in Pulp Fiction, and then you know, yeah, but he's not really playing himself per se, so it's a little bit different there. I mean, I it's not know. like they're going back to like you know, it's not like he has a grease poster in his room, and they're like, you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't. I, you can you could bring people back, you know, their careers back pretty pretty frequently. It's uh, this is more of like a I think a genre feel. You know what I mean? Like creating someone's entire career, um, their entire career backlog and bringing it back from the dead for something that really feels like it's been gone for decades. And, you know, it's really, it's fascinating. They have that Queen Kelly movie that no one had ever seen before because it was never finished or released. You know, like, so I don't know. A lot of that stuff was in. Did Billy Wilder live long enough to see being John Malkovich? I think so. I don't think so. Oh, wait, no, that was 2005 and he got 2002, so he wouldn't know. Oh, so he's not going to see the... Uh... No, the, the movie about um, Nicolas Cage having to play Nicolas Cage, playing Nicolas oh, Cage. Oh, yeah, adaptation. Oh, 1999. 1999, oh, yeah. he didn't live long enough. Yeah, or you got, uh, you know, you did the uh, Robert England was in New Nightmare uh, where they did like him as the Freddy Krueger actor, right? That was pre-Scream where they started to do the self-referential thing. There's, there's Billy Wilder stuff. would have loved that movie. He would have. I, <laughs> I think he did see the first Nightmare and say, said it was great. Well, anything anything Bruce Campbell's really been in is a callback to, you know. Evil Did he Dead. play himself in something? He's in the, he was in that show, Ash versus Evil Dead, that kind of follows. Well, no, they, they, he did do he a. Still, uh, he was still playing wait, Ash, though. Did he? He, play, he played himself in something. What was that? Um, it was the movie where he had to fight the, uh, the Chinese um, ghost with the green curd. Um, oh, God. <laughs> But I feel like I feel like there's been a whole slew of like, if not movies, then like shows where it's like the oh that guy he's back and he, now he's playing himself, but it's slightly. Jason Bateman, rest of development. Oh, no. Well, shows you can shows you can still do that for the same reason that you could do that with a studio in in the 1950s or you know what I mean like when shows are still very much run by a studio um, unless they're on streaming service, but um, you know so. Uh, shows really, you know, you can make a show on the same channel and call back to that, or you know, they're owned like a bunch of channels will be owned by the same, um, by the same main like parent company. So it's like you can still do that with television, but you can still do it in movies too. I mean, look at Michael Caine, he did like you know, Blame It on Rio and then like Children of Men, right? So, yeah. I mean, like, obviously, like, there's some referential, like, oh, you remember you used to like this guy, right? Like, here he is in a role that well, the referential, but he's referential. not playing Michael Caine. That's that's, I think, what he was saying. Like, <laughs> we wanted Cecil B. DeMille, we wanted it so we yeah. got the actual people. Well, Bruce I think you know, it would be too expensive to grab iconic, you know, uh, like it's the studio paying for it at that point. It's the studio 
that has the the footage that didn't get released. In pretty, in some ways, yeah. that uh, that card game was like the original Expendables, but yeah. it was just <laughs> it was just them playing cards instead of like taking down bad guys. I mean, the Expendables is obviously the best possible example you could use. Not a great movie or series, but like no, I mean, that is like all those hill. guys being those guys. Bruce yeah. Campbell played Bruce Campbell in My Name Is Bruce. Oh. So just, what was you know, that? I didn't see that. Is that oh, off of his no, autobiography? No, no. He he plays he plays himself. He gets hired by like this town to get rid of a monster. It's it's you know that kind of I, I mean like, like we've seen oh, that plot before. I missed that. But the thing is though, it's Bruce great. Campbell doing it, and he's kind of playing against you know he's kind of mocking himself. So it's 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 a lot of fun. It's it's not a great film, but it is. Bruce Campbell doing Bruce Campbell stuff. So, and of course, you you mentioned uh, 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 the uh, you know uh, um, the Gary Shandling's thing. Uh, uh, what's it called? Um, Send Diaries of Gary Shandling. No, no the the oh, Larry uh, Sanders show. The Larry <laughs> Sanders show, where that was he wasn't real, but everybody else basically around him almost like all yeah. the, every week he Best would be theme the song of all yeah. time too because it tells you exactly what's going to happen in the show in the theme song which is great <laughs> yeah. another another movie that i was thinking Thank of you, that Andy. does something similar is um <clears throat> the player uh robert altman's movie the player yeah which is One another another scathing hollywood uh satire yeah great movie really really great movie and and has these kind of real references in it as well Alt altman would do that he would bring in real people playing themselves like uh elliot gould is in nashville and um alex trebek is in uh shortcuts uh, is in, both of them like shortcuts yeah, like, oh, like, half of the freaking cast are people like playing archetypes like the character that's funny by the way, the All player, right, well, of course, we, great candidate for a future episode. Yeah, go yeah. Which, which one? The player. Sure. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be, I'd be down for that. Um, so we have to wrap up and premiere this uh, Sunset Boulevard interview, Billy Wilder interview, I guess technically with Joseph McBride and JD Michael. Um, I'm sorry I didn't bring the full hundred percent energy today. I'm so shot after getting this puppy. Uh, and waking up at you know, what kind of her. what kind of puppy is it by the way? I just want it's, to know this. It's a it's a hound mix, so I'm not sure what she's mixed with, but Whoa. she has that. She like she already, I don't think. All right, so she's she's traveled like a lot by now because she originally was in Louisiana, um, and like so the hurricane or whatever uh, happened, and she got brought up to Long Island, which is where I got her from. Um, so she's like a rescue. So she's a rescue from a rescue <laughs> shelter. She's literally been rescued from a storm. Yeah. She's a rescue that got rescued from a storm, pretty much. And um, God so, bless you. Good so luck with a good reason she, to be uh, very low energy. So I didn't I notice at all. Knows. I didn't notice at all. So I, you definitely noticed, but <laughs> but I, I think that uh, I don't think she knows what she's smelling because I don't think she's been out in the world very much. But like, she definitely is already using her nose to like track. Like, because I took her out today and she like she's tracking something, but I don't think she knows what it is. So it's been really <laughs> cute to watch that today. I just dash. Yeah. <laughs> can, can yeah, I dogs will tell on you. A cat's out, She's a police dog. No one thought we could do it. We rescued a police dog, and it's it's incredible, folks. We love our police dogs. <laughs> uh, since, since we're derivating here at the end, I just real quick want to point out that I am uncharacteristically wearing a T-shirt for the show, and it's a custom Audrey Horn. Oh wow! Oh cool. I actually named okay. this dog's name is Audrey, by the way. That's crazy. Wow, that's awesome. Well, Synergy, yeah. right? We just went to the Black Lodge. <laughs> after after Audrey Horn from uh, Twin Peaks? No, yes. after... Uh, well, originally this morning, I was thinking about how we were doing Billy Wilder today, and her original name was Abigail, and I didn't like the way they spelled Abigail. They spelled it weird. 
So I decided her name is Audrey after Audrey Hepburn because you know I, I was trying to name her after some like some trying to find a name I liked that was also like a, a you know movie star name. I like that was, yeah. But the reason why I wore this shirt was obviously because of your dog. Uh, but no, the, the <laughs> secondary reason was because David Lynch is a huge Sunset Boulevard fan to the point. Oh that yeah, Gordon Cole. We didn't bring up Gordon Cole. Uh, I, I was you. just going to say to the point that he named his character in Twin Peaks an archetype of himself in certain ways, Gordon Cole. So that's why I, I, I dug out this. Not that I had any excuse to dig out one of my favorite t-shirts, but that's why <laughs> I wore this t-shirt today. Nice. Thank you. I love it. <laughs> all right. Well, um, sorry about my t-shirt. You're welcome, America. Um, let's let's we all we all gotta you know do episodes soon of this that are uh, a little bit more structured. I think um, I had a fun time though talking through this movie. You know, for two different interviews today. I mean, I think there's so much to say about it that you really uh, you can't do too many. So with with that in mind, this um, was just the next appetizer. week we're coming back together and talking about it some more. Well, next week, next week we're gonna have uh, Matthew Film Guy on, and he's gonna talk to us about Slacker, and that's gonna be a really fun awesome. Awesome. movie to talk about. Um, and we and also obviously to the next episode, and it just will keep going. Yeah, that's how it, that's how it goes. And uh, also, we're having Natalie Sure on on Tuesday to talk about the Naked Gun series, which should be an inc- and it's gonna be incredible, really incredible, folks. There's All no right. need. there's no need for that. <laughs> With that, I am debuting. Our uh, other other half. Okay, you're watching Movie Night Extravaganza. I am here, as always, with my co-host, J. Andrew World, with uh, J.G. Michael, host of Parallax Views, and with Joseph McBride, who, uh, you know, among other things, is a film historian, a cinema professor at San Francisco State University, the co-writer of the musical uh, Rock and Roll High School, and author of several books including uh frank capra the uh, catastrophe of success um which is you know yesterday i I listened to the uh the episode that you did with jg talking about frank capra and um you know just uh the fact that he really just didn't live up to any of the politics that we associate with any of his movies which um is is interesting because i didn't i didn't know that until talking with uh jg about that but it also makes sense i think that he worked with um jimmy stewart who is another person whose politics definitely didn't live up to any of the movies he was in. I mean, he was kind of a incredibly reactionary Reagan Republican, at least <laughs> at the end. Yeah, quite different from their image, but still great filmmakers. And <clears throat> a lot of what I do in my film books is to try to reveal things that are hidden, you know, uh, things that are unknown about people or, uh, or people who are misunderstood for one reason or another. That's uh, what I think part of the job of the film historian is. Yeah, and, and I, um, I was gonna say, Forrest, you forgot to mention that uh, Joseph was in the Orson Welles movie, The Other Side of the Wind. Yeah, um, it, you were in the the documentary that they made about it too, right? Um, well, yeah, there are two documentaries about it. Uh, Netflix doesn't want you to see one of them. It's called The Final Cut for Orson: Forty Years in the Making. Yeah, when you go on Netflix, click on a little link that says Trailers and Extras. They hide that in there. It's really interesting about the post production. They were more concerned about the main documentary that they financed called They'll Love Me When I'm Dead, which is about the making of the film and the trouble Wells had trying to finish it. But then Frank Marshall, who was one of the producers who finished the film, did this uh, fascinating 40-minute documentary about the post-production, which was amazing. I was involved all along the way in one form or another, but they finished the film 
was through Netflix, and it took 48 years to come out. I was acting in it for six years when I was quite young. So it's an amazing yeah. story. Um, I think I, I remember seeing, I think I saw The Love Me When I'm Dead. I, I don't know if I knew that there was the other documentary. Yeah, nobody, um, nobody knows that because they hide that really carefully. So I yeah. will enjoy it, I think. <laughs> yeah, I, I enjoy hearing about Orson Welles. I'm like, incredibly fascinated um with him as a filmmaker and just with a like as kind of a tragic figure i think kind of the most tragic well i um, question that to some extent because um i i have a book coming out it's whatever happened to orson wells a portrait of an independent career i wrote in 2006. i've done three books on wells and this one i've just updated this one to include the completion of the other side of the wind and the rediscovery of his early film too much johnson i take issue with the idea that he's a basically a tragic figure sure he had a lot of tough times and some tragedies along the way but mm -hmm. i think of him as a triumphant figure who managed to keep making films all his life i mean he when he died the new york times said in its obituary he'd been inactive as a director for the last several years and they actually had to run a correction it just wasn't true he was shooting film every day the thing was he was yeah. shooting outside the system and if you work outside the system in america you don't exist you know, he's outside the commercial system. He was making independent uh, films totally on his own. And uh, the thesis of the book is basically he was doing that from the beginning of his career. And briefly, he had the resources of a major studio or two. Um, but he was always an independent and maverick. And I think that's uh, to be admired, you know. Mm -hmm. No, and I, I definitely admire Orson Welles a lot. Um, you know, as someone that wanted to be a filmmaker, still wants to be a filmmaker, um, kind of has always hit 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 a wall, I guess, when it comes to actually coming up with uh, creative projects that aren't just kind of like podcasting or like short documentaries or something like that, you know? It's so really about podcasts or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, because we live in an electronic world, a digital world, and, and you could, I've, I've told my students, you know, if I were making films today, I would make films about people who are separated physically, but are connected through Zoom or something like that. And you could do like a, you know, a love story about people interacting on screens like you're doing or something like that I, I i don't know what plot i would do but you could you could deal with our current reality and uh, come up with some interesting things and shoot it very you could you can shoot a film very cheaply gary graver who is wells's cameraman i asked him in the late 90s i said how cheaply could you make a film today and he was just getting into digital at that time and he said under a thousand dollars so all you need is a camera and anybody can buy a camera for a few hundred dollars uh and you need to feed the crew and the cast, and you can do that cheaply, and that's about it. So you yeah. can film for almost nothing if you can um, get some locations, uh, you know, borrow locations that, that some friends have, and um, you can get actors and crew to work for nothing uh, in exchange for credit. I come from the Rogers Corman School of Filmmaking, where he didn't really pay us much. Uh, so I'm I'm into super low budget filmmaking. Wells was too. Uh, Other side of the wind was a pretty low budget film although it started getting more and more grand and expensive and that was part of the problem but um, by today's standards he was shooting very cheaply he had a small crew and uh, they were mostly like 19 year old guys and a couple of women and uh, you know they were dedicated to him and and most of the actors worked for nothing you know and things like that you can do that today yeah and uh so i guess i guess transitioning to um a filmmaker who was um, doing something I think in some ways similar to what Orson Welles was doing, which is like this um, this cinema verte almost expression of uh, 
real but fictional at the same time, of course, is Billy Wilder doing Sunset Boulevard, which, you know, I mean, flawless transition right there, I guess. But um. <laughs> he was um, making a, a quasi-documentary about Hollywood. When I met him, I, I came from Wisconsin, and I, that's, that's where I got interested in films. And I thought the film was too harsh a portrait of Hollywood. I, I thought writers complained too much. And, you know, then I got to Hollywood, and I was living in a dump. Uh, you know, I had to get a place real quickly, and I found out it was right down the street from where Joe Gillis lived in Sunset Boulevard. I mean, like three blocks away. And then right around a couple blocks, the other direction was the hotel where Nathaniel West set Day of the Locust, which is the greatest Hollywood novel, which is really a horror show. And so I was living in- Also a movie with uh, Karen Black. Yeah, not a, not a good movie, unfortunately. But read that book. It's just a great, great book. But anyway, I was in the midst of this uh, hellish environment. And uh, so I, I told Wilder when I interviewed him, I said, uh, I interviewed him a lot. I said, I, I realize it's kind of like a documentary on Hollywood. And he said, it's a Valentine. I love that. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I, I heard that. I heard you kind of tell that story when you were talking to um, JG um, about about at the end of the Capra thing, which I thought was really funny that we have we have you on here talking about Sunset Boulevard because at the end of that interview, uh, JG says, um, you know, I hope you I hope you do an episode or something on uh, Sunset Boulevard soon. And right. so it's it's cool that we're doing that all um, now. Um, so I so I have um, a couple clips of Billy Wilder. I thought this one was interesting, getting us into the um, the actual, I guess, um, meat of Sunset Boulevard as a film, um, kind of to set it up. Uh, you know, talking about kind of the process around it. Thanks, Harry Pickford. Name Big Fair, and and I. Uh, uh, not me, Bracket, the Republican. He started telling her the story. And I was blanching. I said, oh, my God, she finds out that she's going to pay the guy to, to sleep with her. And I said, Charlie, I, I think we made a mistake. I, I, I think that this is below the level of Miss Bigfoot. Miss Bigfoot is, in, is in, uh, and I can't see. Said, this is impossible. Said, Forgive us, please. Let's go, Charlie. Let's go quit. And we just kind of. Then uh, we had. There was just every actress with a little. Then we got Swanson, and we would go to the front office. I think it was Buddy the Silver. Then it was in the studio. And she says, "For Christ's sake, Swanson, that's a piece of used toilet paper. You crazy? She's acting all over the place like this." She says, "But that's what I want. I want to have a silent actress." Playing how it sounds, and we just see the, the exaggerations, the wildness, the craziness. Now, as they write about the picture or the play, it says, of course, it is lacking the genius of Gloria Swanson. It was, it may be very lucky. This kind of, it was one of those things, you know, where we just kind of, uh, 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 uh falling into a tub of butter. You know, just it was easy. It, it just worked itself into something real and in something that could happen and people that we knew and we did not lie about them. Uh, and, and 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 we had, you know, if you have if you have a picture you know, where where the, 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 the leading man the leading man's uh, line was very simple. I came to Hollywood because I wanted the pool. I got the pool and I died in the pool. Once 
Yeah, he left out one interest, a couple of interesting facets of. I liked your clips of Swanson. What a what a grand silent movie actress she was. Yeah, she she did these wild, extravagant films, but she also did some simpler films. There's a beautiful film she did called Manhandled, directed by Alan Dwan, which is about an average uh, shop girl in New York. It's just really delightful. But um, what happened was they were having great trouble casting this film. And as Wilder said, they went to Mary Pickford and they realized she was wrong for the part and they got out of there. But they also called Paula Negri, who was a great silent star, and she'd worked for Lubitsch a lot. And they found out her accent, Polish accent, was really heavy, and that's why she didn't make it in sound pictures. So they were kind of stuck. And they went to George Cooper, who's one of my favorite directors, and he knew all the great actresses. And he said, well, you've got the perfect actress, Gloria Swanson. You know, I mean, like that was his, his stroke of genius. So he called her up, and I guess Paramount insisted she do a screen test, and she was terribly offended because, as she says in the movie, I made Paramount Pictures, you know, when she's driving through the gate, that great scene, and the guy doesn't recognize her. She says, without you, there wouldn't be a Paramount Studios. And anyway, so she was offended, and then Cukor called her up and said, are you crazy? This is a great part. Do the test, for God's sake. She came out and did the test, and she got the part, and she was just perfect, and he, um, Wilder wanted the grand uh, style, but he toned it down to some extent. Also, he beautifully directed uh, film. And then he got William Holden, kind of serendipity. Originally, they cast Montgomery Cliff, and he pulled out about a week before the start of shooting. And the story was that he was, um, I mean, we know he was gay, but he was sort of kept by an older woman, a rich older woman, and uh, he got anxious about his fans thinking ill of him in this part. And he pulled out. And then they got Holden, who per proved to be the perfect actor. Wilder says in the Cameron Crowe interview book, Crowe says, what actors do you most identify with or whatever? He says, I love Mr. Holden. I love Mr. Holden. He said it three times. And then he said once to Holden in the 50s, uh, Holden was asking his advice about buying a work of art. And he said, well, if I were you, and I am, you know. So he really identifies with Holden. And Joe Gillis, the struggling screenwriter, uh, is kind of the patron saint of all of us screenwriters. I was a screenwriter for 18 years. So I could talk about that. But we all relate to that guy. He is, I mean, it's so accurate, that film. But it's also kind of captures the, the, the romance of the movies in a way, too. The kind of the, the excitement and the fun and the craziness of the movies. And and really, I mean, I think a lot of it is captured in uh, Gloria Swanson's uh, or Norma Desmond's house within the movie. Yeah. And I mean, it's so beautifully shot. It almost looks like a prison at times because of the way that the shadows um, fall on the windows and the doors. Like, you know, there's moments where you can see it's like looking through the through the window and it looks as if like, you know, William Holden and Joe Gillis is in this prison. Um, yeah, it's um, uh, shot by John Seitz, who is a silent cameraman who worked with Valentino, who we, we saw in some of your wonderful clips that you assembled and and uh yeah it's claustrophobic but it's it, it was not on sunset boulevard sunset wasn't as developed as it is now but they found a house in the mid wilshire district which was where carla hills grew up she became a government official later on but it was this grand old house that was torn down later but the house is is a, one of the stars of the film it's just great and he is like a prisoner in there but he's desperate because his car is towed away and wilder said later you know, if you believe that scene, it's because that happened to me when I was a struggling screenwriter. Uh, one of the things I write about in my book, whatever happened, uh, actually, whatever happened, Billy Wilder, Dancing on the Edge is my new book. It's it's now out on uh, Kindle and it's coming out in hardcover in a, uh, in a few days. 
Uh, it's a critical study of his work from the beginning to the end. And I really traced all of his scripts in Germany and early Hollywood and the films he wrote and directed. <clears throat> and uh, he really understood this guy, Joe Gillis, who was pounding the pavement trying to sell scripts because Wilder, it's kind of forgotten, but he went through a period of several years in Hollywood where he was really desperate and uh, living in the ladies' room, he said, at the Chateau Marmo, and women would come in and pee and all that while he was trying to sleep on a cot in the ladies' room. You know, things, he has great stories about that. So he really knew what it was like to be a desperate screenwriter. And um, uh, he, one of the jobs he had in his early life was um, he, they, uh, a producer paid him $50 to show up at a party and jump into the pool fully clothed just to entertain people, you know, which is humiliating. But so Joe Gillis, there's a great line in the narration where he says, the poor dope here always wanted a pool and, you know, now he's got a pool, but he's lying dead in the pool. It starts, it's very daringly uh, narrated by a dead man, which was unusual at the time, very unusual. It was later done in American Beauty rather well. But Wilder came up with that as a kind of uh, partly an accident because it started with him dead and he's narrating as a dead man and you see his body being picked up by the guys from the morgue and the police and they take it downtown. You can see a, little, a few snippets of that on one of the DVDs and people laughed at that at previews uh, because he's lying there in the morgue and he's with a bunch of other ordinary people and they all get up and start telling their stories and sharing how they how they got to be dead and the audience thought that was ludicrous so he cut that out there he was sitting at, at a preview in i think rochester new york he, he went out in the lobby he was so upset he was like this and some lady walked by and she said have you ever seen such a piece of crap in your life and wilder said no i haven't man and so he cut that out but then he was left with uh it starts out with uh, the guy dead but it's a great opening with him floating in the pool. And then he basically says, do you want to see how I got like this? One of the things I think is very charming about the film is that he gets to narrate the film. He gets to tell his own story. He rewrites his life as a movie script, basically. Uh, Wilder is giving this poor guy one more chance to write a film, you know, a big, big A production. And it kind of, I mean, the way that Wilder, um, I think, relates to this character is kind of the opposite of what you guys are talking about with Capra, where Capra kind of, um lied about his entry even into the film industry being like you know um i was you know i suddenly like came into the film industry and directed a film and like you know i was this genius from day one and when you were writing that book um you later found out that like he had basically worked his way up and done all of these you know um smaller jobs in different film crews and then eventually you know became a director which um is, you know i think is something that uh wilder is incredibly honest about in all the interviews that i've watched yeah. with him yeah, Wilder was a, a, an honest man. I mean, he was a newspaper guy from way back, and he, he believed in telling the truth. That's one reason I admire him is he did exposés on film. You can, Truffaut once said you can tell a director's prior occupations by the films he makes. And Wilder was kind of like an investigative journalist all his life, doing exposés of Hollywood and one thing or another. And like the, the newspaper business and Ace in the Hole, he does an expose of that. Uh, and I like that about him being an old newspaper guy. I related to him immediately. I've been a newspaper guy since the '60s, and I met Wilder on the set of the front page. I'd been writing. I've been writing about him now for 51 years. But I went on the set of the front page and spent the day with him and had a wonderful time. And um, but he uh, Capra. I, I call these directors creation myths. Most of them have a myth, like Spielberg claims he found an empty office at Universal and set that up. It's just not true. 
I disproved that in my book. I think it's much more uh, admirable what Capra did. He started out literally cleaning up the horseshit, is what he told me finally. But I, when I interviewed Capra for over a year for my book, the game I played was I had to find out the information from other people, and then he would confirm it and expand on it. So I met a guy from his neighborhood, his next neighbor, uh, Rocky Washington, who was, became the first black lieutenant in the LA Police Department, a really great guy. And he said, oh, we were in the neighborhood. We were all very excited to hear that Capra got a job at a movie studio, and he was just a janitor, but we thought that was cool. So I told Capra, and I said, oh, yeah, I was just cleaning up the horse shit at the Christie Brothers Company. But, you know, he worked as an assistant director, cameraman, um, actor, writer, gag writer, and he even developed film. He made documentary films, all these things before he supposedly walked in the door in San Francisco in 1921 and said, hi, I'm a Hollywood director. It's just nonsense. That really slights the profession of director because you really have to do a lot of work to prepare for it. I tell my students that, but also it's a form of self-aggrandizement. I'm such a genius. I could just walk in the door and make a film. But Wilder didn't do that. Wilder paid his dues. He was a journalist for a long time in Vienna and Berlin. And then he was a, a journeyman screenwriter in, in Germany. And I tried to see all the films that I could. And I wrote about those. They're very interesting. Um, he was frustrated because it was the time when Hitler was coming and the German industry was being taken over by uh, far right forces. So he had to struggle against that. And then he had to flee Hitler and he went to France. And then he came to Hollywood and he was he actually, the films he made in Hollywood early on were even uh, worse than the films he was working on in Germany for a few years until he met Charles Brackett, who was his first important collaborator who worked with him on Sunset Boulevard. They started in 1936 and they kept going through Sunset Boulevard in 1950 and then they broke up. By the way, I should mention, I, I'm always religious about mentioning writers. There's a third writer on the credits of Sunset Boulevard. Nobody ever talks about a guy named D.M. Marshman Jr. And he was a Life magazine reporter who came to interview Brackett and Wilder. And they were telling him they were kind of stuck on this story. It, hard to believe their original idea for Sunset Boulevard was Mae West would be this kind of crazy old star and she'd fall in love with Marlon Brando, who was this young guy. It was supposed to be a comedy, you know, and obviously it changed a lot. Uh, but Marshman came in and he said, well, why not have the old older lady... Uh, keep the young guy as a kind of, you know, kept man gigolo character. Suddenly the whole movie came. So in other words, Marshman thought of the whole movie. <laughs> he asked Wilder, why, why did this guy get credits? Well, you know, he thought of this thing. And Wilder, as, as people do in Hollywood, they kind of say, oh, well, he just thought of this and that. Well, that was the whole movie. Marshman yeah. wrote another screenplay. He has a couple of credits on IMDb for TV versions of Sunset Boulevard. But he died a few years ago, and his daughter said he was just really super proud of having worked working on that film, but he really made a major contribution. Um, and originally the, the Mae West and Marlon Brando one was supposed to be a, a Goldwyn production, right? Um, I don't know about think and... Wilder was working for Goldwyn around that time, but he had a kind of mixed view of Goldwyn, uh, who was a colorful guy who loved movies, but he was a Bulgarian and kind of hard to relate to for Wilder. But it could have been, I don't know for sure about that actually, but, uh, um, I was listening to an interview that he did in the 70s where he was breaking down all these different uh, producers he had worked with. And I'm pretty sure it was Goldwyn that he was talking about that um, they he had pitched it to him. And then Goldwyn was like, yeah, I love the idea. And then they had dinner or something. And then a couple of days later, like he basically heard like from somebody else like, oh, Goldwyn decided he went to New York and decided he hates the idea. And he doesn't want to do it as a movie anymore. 
Oh, okay. And, uh, yeah. It's entirely <laughs> possible because, you know, these things have long, complicated histories. And Brack had published some diaries a few years ago, which are very revealing. And from the very beginning in 1936, he was complaining about Billy Wilder. They really were not very compatible. Brackett was a quintessential wasp from back east from a rich banking family. And he was a lawyer and he went to Harvard and he was a member of the Algonquin Roundtable, very erudite fellow. But and a Republican from the clip we just watched where uh, <laughs> where where Billy Wilder calls him uh, Brackett, the Republican. <laughs> yeah, he's Republican. Wilder was a liberal Democrat, a Jewish uh, refugee from Hitler. And uh, so they had clashes from the beginning. And temperamentally, Wilder was this mercurial guy who would wave sticks around, the, you know, as he, he paced around the office. And, and that drove Brackett crazy. Brackett would sit there on a couch and, uh, with a pad and write things, and Wilder would spew out ideas. And, and uh, that's the way Wilder liked to work. But Brackett didn't like it that Wilder was on the phone with uh, women a lot, making dates, or that he'd have a drink at lunch, and you know, one thing or another. So all through the diaries, he's saying, I wish I could get rid of Billy Wilder and go off on my own. But it's sort of like a, a spouse in a bad relationship. They always say, I'm going to leave the guy the next morning, and then it never happens. <laughs> but finally, I found out in the diaries, it's very interesting, what finally precipitated their break was the House Committee on Un-American Activities hearings in 1947, which was the major political crisis in the history of Hollywood. Uh, Brackett was in favor of the hearings, and he thought that people uh, had an obligation to give their political views to the government. Wilder totally disagreed. Being a refugee from a totalitarian country, he, he really thought he valued American freedoms. He loved America, although he saw our flaws and he criticized them in his films. But he thought that it was terrible for people to, like Dalton Tremblay to be asked for their political beliefs. And so he and Brackett had some very bitter arguments and basically, Wilder said, I'm never going to work with you again. They were working on a foreign affair, which is a great movie. Very political uh, satire, terrific film. But they really wanted to do Sunset Boulevard. You'd wonder why they didn't just stop working together. But, you know, I guess a lot of collaborators like Gilbert and Sullivan famously didn't get along. But they wanted to finish Sunset Boulevard. Also, I think it was a form of protective coloration for Wilder, who stuck his neck out in support of the blacklisted writers and the committee for the first amendment. And he was against the loyalty oath that DeMille tried to put in at the director's guild. And, and uh, he was, you know, for foreign born director, that was gutsy. And uh, so he, he didn't, you know, he partly survived because he was collaborator with Brackett who everybody liked and he was a conservative. And Brackett was an early president of the Screen Directors Guild. and all that and so wilder kind of uh, needed some protective coloration i think that's one reason demille is in sunset boulevard as good as he is it's a way of neutralizing your opposition is put the guy in the film he comes off as a very charming sensitive compassionate fellow in the film even though he turns her down but he wasn't at all like the um you know right-wing ogre that we read about who had his own private Detective service investigating the uh, the loyalty of uh, Hollywood people, for example. Uh, you don't get that in the film. So Wilder kind of protected himself by having DeMille in the film too. Okay. Um, I, I just wanted to kind of bring up, just since you brought up the, uh, um, the you know the the uh, 1947 uh, hearings. Uh, Ronald Reagan was deeply tied in that. Friend of the show, since we've yeah. we've always kind of. <laughs> 
tie things to uh to, to, to reagan you know there's there's uh, quite a few uh there's a quite quite a few ways to tie reagan to this um yeah i still can't find that painting i was telling you about the other uh you know a few weeks ago um i've yeah. been uh i took an art history class and there was this portrait of ronald reagan with a uh standing on like uh like holding up like bloody dead babies and it was all about the uh the, the 1947 uh hearing and i literally cannot find the artist or the painting oh. um uh, and I, I can't figure out. Um, I may have uh, lost a book in a move, uh, well, which, which had that painting yeah, in it. So caricatures of Reagan during you know Iran Contra and, and the war in El Salvador and all that. Reagan was an interesting uh, character in that period. He was involved in the Screen Actors Guild. They had a meeting in November, actually early December '47. I got into the Directors Guild records. And I found some secret documents. Early in December, the representatives of the guild tried to meet with the studios and try to stop the blacklist. And Reagan was arguing to stop the blacklist. He said it was unconstitutional, which was true, and it was against the laws of the state of California, which is true. And yet, and also when he testified as a friendly witness, which means you know not opposing the committee, he was saying that communists had the right to their opinions under the American system, the First Amendment, which is so valuable that a lot of people don't like it today because it allows you to be whatever political party you want to be, whether it's communist or fascist or whatever, as long as you're not overthrowing the government, that's the line you can't cross. Uh, and, uh, but uh, Reagan was defending communist right to their opinion. And yet he was working as a uh, FBI informant. T10 was his code number. And his wife, Jane Wyman, was an FBI informant at the same time. So he was playing this double game like a lot of people in Hollywood did. And then once the once the blacklist got going, Reagan ran a clearinghouse, one of these clearing agencies to, uh, to uh, get people back to work. You know? Yeah, uh, JJ. Yeah, I just wanted to add to that, too. I, I think people forget, too, that McCarthy era, there wasn't just, like, blacklisting. There was also – I didn't even know about this until uh, a few years ago. There was the whole issue of uh, – people getting gray listed. Like I, I didn't realize that, uh, you know, Vincent Price was gray listed for being a, a pre-war anti-Nazi. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there was even people being gray listed, I guess. The, too. the gray list sounds like a Vincent Price movie. Yeah. Right? Gray list. <laughs> when I lived in Hollywood, I didn't know much about it. I was very naive until I got to Hollywood. And one thing I found very quickly, and it's even worse today is Hollywood is terrified of controversy and political issues. I mean, they'll make films that are safe, you know, uh, that seem to take a stand about something but won't really rile people up. But they won't make a film like The Grapes of Wrath in 1940 or a film like The Best Years of Our Lives. You know, those were gutsy films back in the day. Uh, ironically, they were gutsier now. Today's movies are mostly made, you know, the theatrical films are for the adolescent male audience, which is 12 to 24. If you're an adult who cares about characters and dialogue, you have to watch cable TV or streaming, which is, you know, different. Uh, uh, medium, but uh, what happened was in the blacklist period, <clears throat> it wasn't just 10 people, it was initially 10 people blacklisted and went to prison. And then they, in 1951, they had a whole series of hearings, and there were probably about 300 people who were blacklisted. One of the fictions, James Burns, who was Truman's Secretary of State, who was the guy who principally uh, advised him to drop the atomic bombs in Japan became the counsel for the uh, studios who put in the blacklist. It wasn't the government who instituted the blacklist, it was the studios to protect themselves. People forget that. And it wasn't Joe McCarthy. He didn't discover communism until 1949, really, as a, as a big issue. And this was 47, the studios were into blacklisting. 
But other um, other friend of the show, Joseph McCarthy. Oh. <laughs> he was my senator for a while. I, I have some funny stories. Actually, I should. Tell, this is a funny story. When I was a kid in 1953, my my father worked for the Milwaukee Journal, which was a liberal paper. And McCarthy called it the Milwaukee Daily Worker, and so. They had a recall drive in 1954 against McCarthy, and the in the uh, bumper stickers said "Joe must go." So my parents put that on our station wagon, and we lived in a kind of Republican suburb. And I thought they meant me because I was seven years old. What did I know? <laughs> <laughs> my parents were sending me a message. So I would creep out and tear the stickers off the car. And my parents thought it was our Republican neighbors, and so they put the stickers back on the car, and I tear them off. And I must. I mean. They say um, uh, comedy is tragedy plus time. I, I now find it funny. I'm sure it wasn't funny at the time. But what finally happened was my dad put a sticker on the car and he stood in the window on his day off to watch what happened. And he saw his little son skulking around, ripping off the sticker, and he felt very bad about it. So I have a certain empathy for Joe McCarthy because he and I were being recalled at the same time. And uh, <laughs> the recall movements uh, didn't succeed. But soon after that, the Army McCarthy hearings came and he collapsed. But um, Yeah, but, and, and his collapse was followed by his death in a really fucking short amount of time. Considering yeah, right. like how he was in his 40s, right? Like um, he wasn't very old at all. And his like collapse from alcohol, like his, his obviously collapse from, um, the CIA getting involved in the army McCarthy, uh, hearings and kind of, well, what his fatal mistake was he went after the army, which is bad enough because, you know, Eisenhower was president. He was general of armies in world war two. And he was really, but also was terrified of him. Well, he was, he was, he had an ambivalent relationship. He was trying to undercut him. Like Eisenhower is the guy who set up the TV hearings. He, behind the scenes manipulated uh, one of the networks into running the hearings, which he knew would destroy McCarthy, but he never mentioned him in public by name. He didn't think he should dignify him by name. Like Biden doesn't mention Trump by name. He says the former president, but Eisenhower could have done more, but he did something, you know, he, but the point I was going to make, was, oh, I, I uh, at the army of McCarthy hearings in the great film point of order, which I recommend, uh, uh, McCarthy says he's going after the CIA next. And you know, in American history, if you do that, that's it for you. Uh, yeah. But there were about 300 people blacklisted in Hollywood. We don't know the exact number because what James Burns told the studios was deny there's a blacklist because it's illegal. But if you just deny it, we can get away with it. So even in the 70s, some friends of mine did a documentary called Hollywood on Trial. They had Ronald Reagan in it. And they showed up at his office on Wilshire Boulevard at 9 a.m. And he was fully dressed and he had an American flag and a California flag behind him. And he was fully in makeup and everything. And he says, oh, there was no blacklist. You know, this this to me is like Holocaust denial. It's bad enough to be a Holocaust survivor, let's say. But to be told it didn't happen must be really painful. Yeah. But anyway, so there are about 300 people, as far as we know, who are really blacklisted. And then there are a lot of people who are gray listed who are kind of iffy. And they had to do things like write letters to the studios. I've seen some of these letters by people like John Hausman and Rita Hayworth, uh, you know, saying, I'm sorry for my uh, premature anti-fascist opinions, and I, I'm sorry for belonging to this group. But which, they stopped, which, that's they like such a dystopian, that's like such a dystopian phrase, premature anti-fascist opinion. Yeah, it's very Orwellian. <laughs> yeah. So Wilder, um, as far as we know, he wasn't directly affected by the blacklist, except his films in the 50s, he kind of retreated into safe properties for a few years. He started making films based on Broadway plays. 
but he did allegorical films like Ace in the Hole is is an attack uh, primarily on the press, but it's it, you could read it as a, as an attack on the corruption in the country because of uh, blacklisting and, and and the Cold War, and then Stalag Seventeen, which is set in World War II, which is a safe subject by then. It's about informing. It's about the American uh, POWs. Uh, I think one of the guys is an informer, and uh, so that's a lot of Hollywood films of the '50s are very interesting because they dealt with themes like betrayal and informing, but they had to do it in subterfuge ways in westerns and other genres. But anyway, uh, Sunset Boulevard came right in the midst of all that, and there was a poisonous atmosphere in Hollywood, which I think contributed to that film because it's a very vitriolic film about Hollywood to some extent. And, you guys know the story about Louis V. Mayer. It's worth reminding our viewers, right? Um, they had a screening at Paramount. Louis V. Mayer was the most important person in Hollywood for a long time, but he was his power was slipping at MGM, and he was on the way out. But at the end of the screening, as Wilder walked out, Mayer was holding court in the Paramount lobby with a bunch of his stooges, and he was railing. Wilder gave different accounts, but the gist of it was this fellow Wilder he, um, he was an immigrant and we gave him a home and we pulled him out of the water and and now he's uh, attacking us and how dare he do this he's exposing our dirty linen and we should we should throw him back in the ocean and uh, send him back where he came from blah 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 and wilder very bravely walked over to him and said uh, mr deville i'm billy wilder i made this picture mr I, i'm sorry not mr deville mr mayor and he said mr mayor you can go fuck yourself which i thought was great uh and, yeah, and, that's a, and that's a story he got a lot of play out of um later in his career when getting interviewed about the studio system and you know the, his way of standing up to it um yeah. I, but it, i think it, it took a lot of you know it took getting to a point where he could make something like sunset boulevard to have the courage to turn around and then go tell someone like uh mayor to go fuck himself yeah it's it's you know when he said it's a valentine to me he was kind of saying well you know it's not completely an attack on hollywood it's this, some of the romance of Hollywood is in it, the Gloria Swanson character. One of the ironies today from the um, feminist point of view is that she's only a 49-year-old woman and she's portrayed as like really old. And fortunately today, Meryl Streep and uh, Judy Dench and Viola Davis, people like that are still bankable. But in, in, in that period, women were kind of finished uh, a lot earlier. But uh, what makes her seem really ancient is she's a representative of a dead art form, which is silent films. It seems yeah. like, like an ancient period. And so uh, people have totally forgotten her, and it's really tragic. There was a story that they did a musical. Edward Lloyd Webber did a musical version of this. But before that, and Wilder was not happy about it, but Stephen Sondheim came to Wilder <clears throat> and said, let's do a musical at Sunset Boulevard. And Wilder said it shouldn't be a musical, it should be a grand opera because she's a dethroned queen. I love that. Uh, there's something grand and wonderful about her, even though she's crazy and she's uh, in denial of reality. And, he and wrote, interestingly, Gloria Swanson um, wanted to be an opera singer before she wanted to be an actress. Which, really, she was really tiny, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other, the other. I, I need to throw this in here. Um, the other uh, thing that connects a reagan to this movie is that um at the end of her life in her 80s you know she was or she was in her 90s i think when she passed away and like a year or two before it was when reagan had gotten elected and she was the uh she was the chairwoman of uh senior citizens for reagan okay, okay. yeah so, well, so as well as well known uh, with joe kennedy senior uh, they were an item for a while in the late 20s and they made a film together called queen kelly 
which Eric von Stroheim directed, and he was known for being wildly extravagant, so she shuttered the production. And you see a clip from it in Sunset Boulevard. Wilder's two favorite directors were Lubitsch and Stroheim. He said his style was a kind of a strange combination of both. And uh, so they put in this clip from her watching Queen Kelly. Um, but she was a great character. She kind of reinvented herself as she had a TV show and she made a few films and uh, she was a survivor and really a, a fabulous woman. But Holden went on to a great career, you know, and, and Wilder, uh, he won an Oscar for Salt 17. And then he was in Fedora, which is a, a, a fascinating but flawed Billy Wilder film from the 70s, which is kind of like a, a reflection on Sunset Boulevard. I'd recommend people see that. It's a darker, even darker version of Sunset Boulevard. It's about the film business. Yeah. Um, well, I, I have the, yeah. I have this clip of, uh, I have this clip of, um, of uh, Gloria Swanson talking about Queen Kelly. Um, just as you said that, I was like, I, I had actually had that on the outline for the next clip. I was going to be like, here's, here's, so this is this is her talking about shuttering the production on it. Oh, okay, great. Queen Kelly is not a finished picture. The only thing that was rather um, difficult at the time was that he was uh, taking longer to do one third of the picture. We, of course, pictures have budgets and picture, that means a certain length of months to shoot a picture. Uh, I happened to become worried about what was being shot. And since the two people that were being put in charge didn't seem to have any control over the situation, I walked off the set one morning <clears throat> after it was very early in the morning and I had just had a cup of tea for breakfast and uh, went to the dressing room, my bungalow, where I lived actually, uh, and called New York and called the bankers and said, I think you'd better come out here because I'm worried. Much of the stuff that we're making in this dance hall quote, question mark, um, I think is censorable and uh, the Will Hayes office will never allow us to, to show it. And um, <clears throat> not only that, but we have uh, 20,000 feet for the first third of the picture. And uh, if we continue like this, we're going to be all year and it's going to cost more than I wish to be responsible for. So like that, the bankers were there. They didn't have jets in those days, but they might, they, it, it, they were there before I knew it as if they'd come by their own kites or their own steam. And so we, then I, as a matter of fact, I never saw von Stroheim from that day until actually we were making Madam, uh, we were making uh, Sunset Boulevard. Fascinating, we could tell how smart she is and interesting and uh, it's fun to yeah. see. And, and also, you know, um, I think there's background on that, which is after she worked for uh, Cecil B. DeMille and, and did those movies, um, she got involved with United Artists, which, you know, gave people the chance to, um, well, gave like big stars the chance to kind of produce their own movies. But a lot of times they would have to put up uh, some of the capital for it themselves. Mm -hmm. So if you were working on a movie that, that was going to tank and go way over budget, you were kind of draining your own bank account. Um, which, which was kind of when she got involved with uh, Joseph Kennedy uh, Sr., like the, you know, the father. Um, you know, he was helping her produce these films and had his banker friends kind of bankrolling some of it. But then yep. a lot of it would come from her own bank account, and it kind of ended up actually bleeding her dry um, throughout this period because she was yep. financing films that kind of either wouldn't get made or um, Joe Kennedy would say, oh, well, I can help you get it around the Hays Code censors. Don't worry about that. And then, 
the and then she'd have to like get involved with these really rigorous fights um against the 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 Hayes code people yeah that kind of hurt her career uh one of the oddities her career kind of floundered floundered around that time but she did a film the wilder road the first credit he had after he came to Hollywood was a musical called Music in the Air, which is sort of a silly uh, Hammerstein and Kern second-rate musical. A lot of talent was involved, but it wasn't much of a film. But she plays a diva who uh, appropriates this young uh, songwriter uh, to try to control him and make him her boy toy. And it kind of relates to Sunset Boulevard. But ironically, when Wilder approached her, she didn't remember they had ever worked together. Maybe they didn't meet. But he was able to take her performance and music in the air and kind of modulate it for the film. But um, we we all love uh, Joe Gillis. He's our, as I say, our patron saint because he's a struggling writer. I love the scene where he's typing in his bathrobe. Somebody once said they ran into F. Scott Fitzgerald when he was struggling to be a screenwriter. He's a great novelist, but he never quite figured out how to be a screenwriter. And he opened the door at three o'clock in the afternoon in his bathroom, and they thought that was scandalous. But that's one of the good things about being a screenwriter. In my book, Writing in Pictures, which is a handbook on how to write screenplays, I wrote that one of the good things about being a screenwriter is you can sit in your underwear and write scripts. And, and the editor made me take that out. He said, do you really want to say that in the script? I said, well, yeah, the good things about being a screenwriter. But so Joe Gillis is pounding away on his typewriter, and he, he says, uh, the voiceover, Wilder felt... Um, don't use voiceover just to tell people what they're seeing. Use it to add something to the scene. So he's he's giving sardonic views of Hollywood throughout, and he's kind of the voice of Wilder to some extent. But he's a real formed character, and it really helps for him to make sardonic references to put it in context. But he says, I was writing all these scripts. They were originals. Some of them maybe weren't original enough. Then he pauses and says, some were too original. I can relate to that as a screenwriter. I was writing, I wrote it's something honestly. Scripts. I, I doubt it in Joe Gillis's case that they were too original. I feel well, like yeah, because he seems like. The story about baseball, it's really trite. Uh, one one yeah. I'd like to talk about who's neglected in this film is Betty Schaefer, the story editor, played by uh, Nancy Olson, who's still with us, a wonderful actress, very charming. Uh, when I was in in uh, Wisconsin, I thought she was too good to be true. You know, she's so nice and all that. And I thought she was bland. And then I came to Hollywood and I realized, well, the best people in Hollywood are these story editors who are usually bright young women in their 20s who went to some really good school and they're well-read. And I, I became friendly with some of them because they liked my work and they were nice. You could talk to them. And then they would, they would try to pitch my scripts to their boss, who was usually some crass older guy and the guy would say well that's too soft i used to hear that expression i used to hate that soft meant like humane about people or whatever you know it wasn't like mm -hmm. hurting each other so betty schaefer is actually a very believable hollywood character and wilder has a tendency uh, one of the things i counter in my new book billy wilder dancing on the edge is this myth that he's a cynical misanthrope you know hatred of humanity or whatever um I think he's a disappointed romantic, is what his later collaborator I.L. Diamond called him. Um, that he was, um, his heart had been broken many times in love. And, you know, the, I mean, he came from the Austro Hungarian Empire, collapsed, and then Nazism came. And he lived through a lot of upheavals. He was an exile over and over again. He found a home in Hollywood. But he was, um, 
he was not a cynic. He was just a realist. I said to him once, I called his called him a cynic, and uh, without thinking, he said, "But if I'm cynical, what adjective do you have for Peckinpah pictures?" I thought there was a great call. You know? <laughs> oh, I, I wanted to put up the um, pictures that you uh, sent me. Yeah, here I was talking to him in 1995. I gave him the uh, L.A. Film Critics uh, Career Achievement Award in 1995. And, and so I talked to him a lot on different occasions. He was a great interview subject because he was an old reporter and he knew how to really talk to the press. And we got along well. And, and here I am on the set of the front page in 1974, looking very young and thin. And uh, <laughs> I did an interview with him. Uh, it was published in the real paper in Boston in Sight and Sound. And I interviewed I.L. Diamond and Jack Lemon, Walter Matthau, and the cameraman and the producer. And so over the years, I got to talk to Wilder a lot. Todd McCarthy and I did a big interview with him in 1978. Uh, all, a lot about his later career. I love his later films. And that's one thing that people tend to neglect. It, he made a lot of good films with Brackett. You know, they did Nanochka for Lubitsch. They did uh, Double, uh, actually Double Indemnity. He wrote with Raymond Chandler. His bracket thought it was a horrible, horrible story, but he liked the film. But they did. Um, There's a character that kind of reminds me of Joe Gillis in some way too. Alternate F, like the not not the just the depression inherent kind of in it, and this style of noir where it's like the character at the center of it is not necessarily like a good person. They're kind, of, you know what I mean? Like they're he, he, he can deal with well. I was saying he he has good women in his films. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, the people who are really good-hearted people, like Betty Schaefer, encourages Joe's better qualities, and then he rejects her. Unfortunately, you kind of want to scream at the screen at the end when he tells her to leave because she's his only salvation. But if he had stuck with her, she she somehow manages to maintain her integrity and and goodness in the midst of the cesspool of Hollywood. But quite yeah. often, his characters are are struggling between corruption and trying to redeem themselves, get out of the mess they're in. And so um, Joe Gillis is one of those characters. He's, you know, his car has been repossessed and he, he has no money and and he takes whatever job he can get as a ghostwriter for this woman. And, uh, um, you know, he's humoring her and he becomes her um, uh, gigolo. Wilder in his early days was a gigolo of sorts. Um, this is well known. There are a lot of gigolos in his films or kept men. Uh, and, and he deals a lot with prostitution versus love. That's a big conflict in his films. Like, you know, prostitution is sort of the human condition in Wilder's films, but we can surmount it by actually loving somebody. And that's the conflict in a lot of his films. But in the 20s, when he was struggling as a journalist, he was working as a uh, tea dancer, they called it, Eintanzer, at hotels in Berlin where you would dance with uh, older ladies or just, uh, you know, girls. Uh, who, were, who wanted a dancing partner, and he had to pretend to be this suave dancer. And he wrote this wonderful series in 1926 called uh, It's All About Being a, a Tea Dancer, and it would make a great movie. And it's a four-part series, and I talk about it a lot in the book. And he understood the humiliation involved in being a kept man. And so that theme keeps coming up, like in Ninochka, uh, which is the, the Lubitsch film. Um, the character played by Melvin Douglas is, is a gigolo. He's very suave and very charming, and he's, he's not particularly uh, destroyed by it. But, you know, he has to kind of get out of it and fall in love and, and be his own man. And uh, poor Joe Gillis can never quite manage it because the system, I guess what Louis B. Mayer was upset about, it, 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 it indicts the system of Hollywood as a soul-crushing thing. DeMille says in the film, 
uh, something like 20 press agents working overtime can do terrible things to the human spirit. You know, the way they make poor Norma feel like she's a complete failure and worthless person when she should be reveling in her grandeur. If she were around today, she'd be honored at film festivals and stuff. But back then, they didn't have that. Yeah. Um, I wanted, this actually lines up perfectly with this last clip that I wanted to play. And then uh, Andy has a question quickly about uh, Rock and Roll High School that he, okay. he is going to tie uh, into this. But, but um, yeah, so I wanted to wrap it up pretty, like, you know, so you could get um, off when, when you need to. But um, this is quickly, I wanted to, this is just a minute of uh, Billy Wilder talking about how he wanted to originally end this movie. And it plays into the same uh, quote that you just said about, um, <laughs> yeah. Finish the story. The fact that Boulevard had 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 uh, had that 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 thing, you know, the 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 pool and, uh, and getting it, and and then uh, and then and then uh, was no other ending except uh, it's being shot. Uh, the daring thing was the daring thing was uh, that that uh, that after the murder and the police and all of that thing, and once one 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 character I could not get in, I just that would have been wonderful. That the newspaper people are there and telephoning, and one, on one phone I had had a harper, on the other phone I wanted to have uh, to have uh, 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 what's the name of the other gossip woman? Uh, we'll start with who? Luella Parsons. Luella Parsons, and she's on the upper phone, lower phone. Get off here, little bitch! I could not get uh, her because she knew that Ted Harper was an experienced actress, but. Uh, uh, no, no executive would come and say, now, just a second. I mean, is there going to be a lawsuit? Is, there, is she going to be arrested? Is she going to be in jail? I said, I have no idea. I know it's, all I know is she's Miss Sugar. That's all. That's the ending. She talks to the audience. You know? Yeah, so... Um... I don't know. That ending makes a lot more sense in that context, I think, because, you know, she's sitting, uh, Hedda Hopper sitting on the, on the bed and she's like, Oh, you know, I'm, I'm more important as the press. And I think it would, you know, it would have been, it would have made way more sense if the two of them had gone at it's it. A, and you know, the callousness of the press again, Hedda Hopper as uh, the actor, um, uh, who played chief scar on the searchers, Henry Brandon. I interviewed him about John Ford and he said, Hedda and Ward Bond ran the Hollywood blacklist and, he says, if you do that to a cowboy, you get hung. I love that quote. They were terrible people. And Hedda Hopper was one of the worst. And, he, and so she, she's a real viper in the film. But yeah, she's Miss Sugar. You know, he puts in these Yiddish uh, terms. Later, he, uh, his, his films are about becoming a mensch or a man. I.L. Diamond, I like his films that he wrote with Diamond later after he tried a few other collaborators. And then he settled with I.L. Diamond, who was very sympathetical with him. And, and made a lot of great films in his later years, Private Life of Sherlock Holmes, Avanti, etc. That's another story, as they say in, in the Wilder scripts. But uh, Sense of Boulevard is a perfect film. It's one of those great, great masterpieces. Yeah. I was going to say, you cover the Private Life of Sherlock Holmes in the book, right? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. And I have a long section on Fedora, which is fascinating as a kind of uh, final reflections on Hollywood. Very, very bitter film. Because he had been rejected by Hollywood, he and Diamond were kicked to the street, basically kicked to the gutter. Sunset Boulevard begins in the gutter, you know. I mean, that's that's his vision, you know. And then it moves up from the gutter and take it from there. But yeah, I, I deal a lot with the older, uh, the later films, which I try to uh, 
champion. I've done that since like since the 70s when they came out. I've been trying to say, no, he's making great films in this period as well. And it's not just, uh, let's look back at the 40s and 50s. Uh, you know, he had a long, rich career. So that's one reason this book is just long. It's hard to even lift it. It's about 700 pages. Hopefully fun to read uh, because I go into his all the ups and downs of his amazing career uh, in, in Germany, uh, Vienna, Poland, before that, France, Hollywood, and back. And then he went back to Europe to make film, films later on when Hollywood kind of rejected him. He became a European filmmaker again. He, he, like Lubitsch, he was one of those directors who interpreted America to Europe and Europe to America. He, was, he brought a cosmopolitan spirit to our films. That's one reason Sunset Boulevard holds up so well. It's extremely sophisticated and and very uh, tolerant, and it's very compassionate toward Norma. Norma, even though she's kind of a tyrant and she's crazy, even though uh, she's Michigana. <laughs> yeah, you feel deeply for her. She's a tragic queen, as he says, and you feel deeply for Holden too. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I just um, yeah. This is actually a great transition to my question because uh, I, I kind of feel like Billy Wilder is is like uh, a lot like Alex Cox, which we've had a discussion about uh, punk filmmaking, and of course you wrote Rock and Roll High School, and since you know uh, we never like the the Lubrich touch, uh, we we never quite defined what punk filmmaking actually was, uh, although Lubrich touch has a better definition. It just has a bunch of them. So I just kind of was wondering, since you know we've had earlier discussions on this channel about uh, punk filmmaking, um, and you you know you wrote uh, a movie which I uh, would argue was more into the uh, post. Um, uh, what was that movie? Uh, uh, the the one that uh, uh, Lucas did. No, no, I was I was thinking more like like the seventies nostalgic. Uh, Teen uh, uh, style that that kind of gave us eventually Animal House and um, yeah. uh, but, it, it's American like, Graffiti. Joseph the American Graffiti, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah American that was graffiti a wonderful was a, movie, but it was kind of wholesome and fun, you know. Whereas yeah, but like like it kind of it kind of created the formula that that like um, uh, later movies like like Porky's and uh, Animal House kind of uh, filled in, and and I think uh, Rock and Roll High School kind of uh, sits in that. A kind of camp but anyways like like what your thoughts about punk filmmaking are and if we could uh maybe just in general as the channel have a better definition well, making a I, movie with roger corman i'm sorry like roger corman and the ramones by the way just just yeah. to add that in there if people don't know what we're talking about the ramones make that film special i mean it's a film that has never stopped playing and my son a few years ago said you know dad the only thing about this film that dated is vinyl but vinyls come back so hey you know but the Ramones, it was a stroke of genius to get the Ramones as the band. When I wrote the script, we didn't know who the band would be. And the Ramones, I like them because they hark back to the very earliest days of rock and roll, which I was into from 1955. And But they were very sophisticated songwriters. And uh, they dealt with subjects that the mainstream didn't want to deal with, like glue sniffing and child abuse and things. So they had trouble getting played on, on uh, radio. And so they never were destined to be a mainstream success, which is what partly what I like about them. And that's partly why they're authentic punk, you know, as punk is an outsider uh, rebel medium. And once you become mainstream, which they tried uh, uh, with Phil Spector and it bombed, they tried to do an album where they cleaned up and it just died. And uh, But they were a cult favorite. They're cult favorites and they still are. And that's what makes the film 
really work. But, uh, you know, I think the characters are good. It's based on a um, uh, student strike my father ran in 1928 at, at his high school in Superior, Wisconsin. But I always kind of held it in reserve as a film idea. But I thought it was a little mild for the 70s until I thought of ending with a violent thing where they blew up the school, which I based on the students in 1970 when I was in Madison, Wisconsin, blew up the Army Math Research Center to protest the Vietnam War, and they killed a graduate student, unfortunately. And I, I covered that event, and so I thought, let's put in something serious and make it a serious political satire in the midst of all the silliness. And it is the material I was handed originally to rewrite was just silly. So I thought, let's add some political overtones. And also, my background as a Catholic school kid, I really understood fascist, repressive nuns and priests. And so Mary Warnoff's character, the principal, resonates with people because she's so true as a disciplinarian. Anyway, that was a, that was a fun film. A lot of people worked on that. You know, I was one of the writers. It was one of those classic collaborations that uh, the parts were all all came together in a kind of unexpected way. And I'm glad you like it. And uh, it was, you know, one thing. I there was a book on Hollywood musicals in the '70s came out in the '90s, and I, I saw it at the bookstore, and I thought, oh, great. And I looked at the contents. Rock and Roll High School is not even mentioned, and I. I'm not saying it's cabaret, but you know it's a good movie. But it was so far outside the mainstream; it was made for two hundred eighty thousand dollars by Roger Corman that it didn't even count in the in the minds of uh, conventional people. Uh, and that's typical of like Orson Welles not counting in the minds of conventional people because he wasn't working in uh, the mainstream superhero kind of movies. But I like people who work on the margins. I think that's some of the best filmmaking that endures. Yeah, and I think that's why Orson Welles has endured as long as he has, um, you know, yeah. working outside of a studio system that was really being, you know, repressive at the time to the point where if you pissed one or two people off, like, you know, you were you were done for, like your career was over. Yeah, and I think, too, uh, the working in the margins is, is a good partial definition of what punk filmmaking is. Hey, yeah. I, I just wanted to say real quick, uh, Joseph, I'm glad you mentioned Mary Warnoff because as much as the Ramones make that film, you know, Mary Warrenov is my queen. So, like, yeah. her being in that movie, I don't think anyone should oh. sell her short. And she was punk before punk. She was a Warhol factory girl. Yeah, she's she's amazing. She's really tall and imposing and witty and sophisticated. And she, she really uh, uh, nails that character. And uh, I play one of her henchmen. I was a school board member. I had no lines. And I was an extra in some films. And I once asked an old extra, how do you get noticed in a scene? He said two things. Stand next to the person who has the dialogue in the scene. Stand next to the tallest person in the shot, because the camera <laughs> will gravitate toward them. So I, I figured, okay, Mary Warnoff, she's my height, six three. She had the lines. I stood next to her, and she kept kind of looking at me. And then I'd look at her, and we'd give each other evil looks, you know. And it became like a little shtick, especially. <laughs> but uh, it is a, a one of those films in which uh, many disparate talents. Uh, pooled the resources and it was kind of an unlikely success but yeah i mean billy wilder too i like him because he is a maverick he was always a maverick and uh, he worked within the mainstream system though he wanted to be successful and popular and he he uh succeeded had a long career and then they kind of kicked him out the door when youth films came in and he couldn't quite adapt and that's a sad part of it but he, he you know he didn't let it destroy him he just you know moved on to other things but um he was he challenged our system he challenged the american way of life and 
he challenged our, our conventional views of men and women and, and humanity. And, and then got weirdly nostalgic for the system that he had kind of <laughs> departed yeah. from towards the end. If you listen to any of his uh, screenwriting, like, you know, his classes on screenwriting, like the or lectures on screenwriting that he gave, he gets all weirdly like nostalgic for uh, old Hollywood. He'll be like, he'll be like, no, I think, I think we should, I think, I think, we, you know, this was really where, I, where I shined, and you're, you know, but yeah, it's I, like, ironically, I did a book called the Book of Movie List, and I had one list, ten reasons why the studio system was bad, ten reasons why the studio system was good, and it's encapsulated by John Huston saying, you know, when we worked in the studio system, we all kept saying we wish the studio system would be destroyed because we'd have freedom. And then it was destroyed, and we didn't have that freedom. And we realized, hey, it wasn't so bad after all. And guys like Wilder and Lubitsch and Houston and other people worked in the system rather well, but they had to be very clever to outwit censorship, which yeah. Lubitsch and Wilder. But, but I mean, if you're if you're going based on you know what's good and what's bad um, about the studio system, it kind of made some of the most ingenious filmmaking because it had to get past that censorship. Like yeah, you yeah. Look at, yeah, like as the Hayes Code kind of crushed a lot of creativity the creativity actually bloomed again because people had to be creative enough to get it past the senses yeah, they had to be clever and uh in my lubitsch uh, book how did lubitsch do it i have a whole final chapter on romantic comedies today which i think are kind of dismal compared to lubitsch's part of it is the old um, restrictions have broken down so you could do almost anything you can have people uh uh taking a dump on the street and uh you know yeah. in that terrible film bridesmaids and then follow it Actually, there are two scenes in a row where they do that, which Wilder called humpback construction, which means you have the same thing happen in two successive scenes. But, you know, Lubitsch didn't do that. Wilder didn't do that. They had to be more subtle and sophisticated, and that's why those films hold up better than a lot of that silly stuff. Uh, and uh, that's why we look back. I wish younger people, uh, you know, I'm teaching a class later today on Wilder and Lubitsch, and I'm showing Sunset Boulevard, oddly enough. And, when I show these films to students, they think, wow, these are wonderful films. These guys were way ahead of their times. And Lubitsch, they love. And Wilder, they really love. I think he, Wilder is a little more uh, troubling for people because he's um, maybe a little more close to us in terms of time. But um, they, they find them very sophisticated compared to the garbage that they're uh, dealt today, you know, frankly. Yeah, I, I first saw Sunset Boulevard, Sunset Boulevard, wow, because of a, a noir class I took my last semester of college, and we watched uh, 14 noir films in 14 weeks, and both Double Indemnity and um, Sunset Boulevard were in there. Oddly enough, as a kid, um, my dad and I watched Some Like It Hot a bunch of times because we had gotten it from a DVD store, and we ended up watching it like five times but i'm gonna let you go because you know you have office hours so i don't want to yeah, so i'm a teacher that's my my gig you know and, and uh, but i like it because being a teacher you talk to young people and you show them films and you get them excited about classic films and then you can write about them at the same time so today i'm doing my lubitsch wilder class which is great next week i'm showing some lubitsch german films i'm going back and forth between the two guys they're very different but very similar but now i've written books on both of them and uh, it's kind of a natural progression. My next book is on the Coen brothers, who I, I love. And to me, they're the modern equivalents of Billy Wilder. If he were working today, he'd be making films. Yeah. Like and there's and there's the connection between um, Tilda Swinton playing both, like, kind of the Hedda Hopper character and Luella Parsons. In, uh, yeah, yeah. They're very yeah. toward Hollywood. They, I mean, they're very wicked and funny uh, satirists. But they, they, they kind of love people. They, they they call their characters in an affectionate way morons. You know they love morons. Yeah. 
because our country is full of about half morons and we always have them actually. <laughs> but so i mean not all their characters are morons i mean like the dude is not a moron he's a very clever guy but a lot of the characters are very wacky but you know they're they're kind of the heirs of billy wilder in today's world so it's kind of a natural progression so I, anyway i hope people uh, will get this book which is coming out from amazon on september 24th and uh, it's already out on kindle by the way if people are interested in buying it now but i spent 12 years off and on writing that and and 50 years writing about billy wilder so he's it's a dream come true for me because I just love Billy Wilder's films to distraction. I think he's such a great uh, filmmaking uh, marvel, and, and I hope people get a kick out of it. But I really delve into what makes him tick and what some of the mysteries are in his his life and work, and I hope that people will find that illuminating. Yeah, and, that, I, and, and I hope you'll come back if we do another uh, Billy Wilder film in the in the future. Um, or Cohen's brother's film. Yeah. yeah. That book is coming out in March. It's called The Whole Dern Human Comedy, Life According to the Coen Brothers, which is that line from uh, Sam Elliott at the beginning of uh, Big Lebowski, The Whole Dern Human Comedy. And uh, so I would love to talk to you guys again. It's always fun. And you guys have great questions. And thank you so much. All right. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for coming on. And we're going to we're gonna premiere this at uh, 8 tonight, or at, probably at 9 tonight when we finish our first stream on it. But yeah, cool. so um, I'll send it to you when we do. Thank you, guys. All right. Gaba gaba hey for the moms. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>